fishing in the swamp, something began to pull violently at my line. After struggling for some time to reel it in, I saw the snapping turtle's mouth break through the slime that covered the surface of the water. My great-grandfather, who sat nearby, told me to wait while he went to his truck. He was a brutal man. You could see his sinewy muscle through the skin of his face, which had taken on the cadaver's appearance. He was a man more dead than not, and he terrified me. When I heard the old man limp towards me with his cane, I turned around to see him raise his hand, just holding a gun, and he shot the turtle at point blank range without a word. A piece of the turtle's viscera, maybe the size of a grain of rice, hit my face and stuck to it before it began to slowly creep down like some kind of fetid slug. I stood there paralyzed by fear. You can't let them things live, boy. He spoke in his guttural draw. Bought on by the deformation of his jaw that resulted from a lifetime of chewing tobacco. His whole life sat in the bottom of that putrid mason jar. The one he spat in all day in his living room with its yellowed linoleum floor. With its nonsensical designs that twisted and warped as it receded from the walls. Just like his gums from his dying teeth. Memories like this stay with you. They reverberate down to the marrow of your bone. They're like ripples on a pond. They fan out. More than a decade later, when I looked at his poorly embalmed and makeup kid corpse, this was all I could think about. This is Christ Drowned in Concrete, Episode 1. Reflected in glaring eyes. What's your earliest memory of death? The earliest thing I can remember was probably, I had to have been about five or six. And uh, my dad's side of the family lives in a small town called Van Horn. It's like two hours away from here. And I remember going to a funeral for one of his cousins. And uh, it's, it's a small town, you know, a fucking one horse town and the horse is always on vacation. And it's a small funeral parlor, but it was, jammed like to the brim with people and uh i'd never i never knew that person at all and i didn't know a lot of that side of the family because you know they live out of town and uh it was just kind of 
strange but solemn in a way. It, it felt almost like it was a uh, kind of sterile because I didn't know that person. I didn't know any of these people that were mourning, but you could feel that there was something like reverential in that place. I started seeing that more often. And uh, I remember when I was younger too, my brother would watch wrestling. I remember seeing the undertaker for the first time. And like, this is the guy that comes out and he's fucking putting people in body bags and coming out with caskets. And it just started, uh, it was something about it that was, that was in me after that. I was always attracted to that. I also remember watching uh, Fantasia when I was like three or four. And that's also what got me into music. And it was mostly because of the last part, uh, A Night on Bald Mountain, when the Black God comes out and he's raising all the spirits of the dead from the grave and they're dancing all around him like a giant witch's Sabbath. You know, they're, they're like on the Brocken Mount. And ever since then, it was always something about death has always stayed with me. You know, as I got older, you know, more and more family members would die, people that I were closer to, people that I knew. And then it seemed like I was going to funerals every, it seemed like probably every year. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been so long, I can't really, you know, ascribe any certain strong feeling to it. But it's just something that seems like it's always been there. It's always present. And it's kind of molded my, my worldview. Like, death is now something very sacred to me. It's probably the highest aspect that I worship. And it all started right there. Do you have any idea why that started that way? Why that would be inherent in you? Or is it just something that was biological, do you think? Uh, I guess also because, you know, like a lot of people, I was raised Catholic. And there's always been a very big uh, part of death in Catholicism. You know, that, you know, Christ died to save the world. And, you know, Lazarus was risen from the dead. And there's always been this big aspect of death. But everybody looks at it as like this uh, something to be feared in a way. Like even the Orthodox Church looks at death as an unnatural state and they try to avoid it. But even in their own beliefs, it's like if you want to go to heaven or to the afterlife, you have to die. It's part of life. And it never really, uh, I guess it never really scared me in a way or it never struck me as something to be feared somewhat. I mean, you have situations where, you know, you feel like, your life could end, you know, you kind of freak out because it's going to happen suddenly, but it's because it's that suddenness that, you know, you're not, you're not ready to go just yet. But when you think about it, it's not something to be feared. It's something that you have to look towards. It's something that has to happen. Nobody's going to escape death. And yeah, I guess it's like, I guess the way I was raised, like the, the culture and everything, you have the day of the dead, you know, you always remember your ancestors. So it was always something that was prevalent, but I never saw it as like a, something to be demonized. It was never anything that um, should be shunned or something you should shy away from. If anything, you should embrace it because, you know, this is, unless you believe in reincarnation, this is pretty much all you have. And you got to make the best of it, which, you know, not to sound all fucking bright and cheery and new age but it's true like if you're here you might as well do something with it and if you're not going to do anything then just fuck off you know kill yourself or be done with it but if you have grand aspirations you might as well put it to use and why you know blue your cult said it man don't fear the reaper i think it's remarkable that you were able to 
you know, make that association that early on. Do you think a lot of that has to do with that religious upbringing? I know in our private conversations, you've talked a bit about that and, uh, I'd like to hear about that a bit more. Yeah. I mean, it could be, um, you know, I was raised in a pretty strict household. Uh, I found out maybe in my teen years that my dad had actually, uh, wanted to become a priest when he was younger and he went to seminary and uh, he actually knows the entire Tridentine mass in Latin. So that's something that's always struck with me because Latin is something that I, it's, it's a, you know, everybody sees Latin as this, you know, grandiose tongue, which it is, you know, everybody uses it, fucking mayhem, funeral mist, uh, watain, you know, uh, it's all over the place. It's inherent, especially because we're Latin American, so I mean it's it's part of the part of the culture. Uh, when my dad decided he wasn't going to become a priest, he ended up joining the army. Uh, he became a police officer and all this shit. So pretty much, the way I am is a complete rejection of like that life that he had and what he wanted for me. But there's always certain things that stuck with me. Like, I remember he would have uh, CDs lying around of like monk, monks doing a benedicting, benedicting chants, and that always resonated with me. Especially when I heard, you know, like Despel Omega doing Carnal Malefactor, and uh, even though it's Orthodox chanting, it's pretty much in the same vein. That kind of stuff has always stuck with me, and I've always loved that type of music, like that choral, like the harmony and everything about it, and it's very powerful. There's a the spirituality behind it, you know, the religious aspect. I've always thought that religion is man-made, but faith is divine. And I've always felt like the faith and the spirit inside of it. And that's what people should be striving towards. Not the fucking 10 commandments and all this other bullshit, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, it's always, you know, been part of me ever since I, I grew up, you know, we all always had to go to church, this, this, and that and fucking, pray to God, pray to the saints, ask for forgiveness and all that shit. And I started seeing the right things about it. And I started seeing all the other bullshit that I had to get away from as I got older. So I guess in a way your rejection of it is, you know, on its face, maybe the aesthetic rejection of it, but the, the actual message is something you took to heart. I mean, in many ways, right? Yeah, definitely. Especially when it comes to Catholicism, because a lot of it is based on, uh, asceticism, like you said, uh, there's always like suffering, and you can't, you know, truly be happy. You have to, uh, you know, there, there's no uh, indulging in, in like carnal pleasures and stuff like that. And not just to say like, you know, fornication. It's like you can't imbibe and fucking, you know, be intoxicated and this, this, and that. Like, go out and enjoy yourself. You have to live purely for the Lord, but. That's not how human nature works, especially if humanity has been given free will, then you're going to want to, you have to experience all this shit. You know, there's, it's not so black and white. You know, a lot of people that were priests, you know, lived a fucking more chaotic, lawless lifestyle before they came into the church or whatnot, or maybe they were in the church and then they got out of it. So it's definitely like, you reject it at face value, but there's something stronger that's beneath it. You got to pull away the veil and see what's hiding behind. You know, it's almost like when you're in church and only the priest is allowed to go into the, 
go into the tabernacle, you know, and take take the host. Only he's allowed to to deal with that. Everybody else is just kind of blinded by all the the statues and the saints and their hymns. They don't see what else is what's really behind, like the actual essence of God or divinity, whatever you want to call it. And uh, there's certain you know aesthetics in the church that I that I still like a lot, but Catholicism is a very solemn belief and that's kind of the way i've always carried myself throughout the years more uh i guess laid back and subdued but it's more like like you're lying in wait and you're observing everything taking everything in almost like a like a serpent you know waiting to strike you have to see what's going on you got to put all the pieces in place like playing a game of chess and you know it's there's some people that like to go out and, you know, they wear their, their beliefs on their sleeves and shit away their heart on their sleeves. And I do that as well, but only in certain, certain moments when it's called for. Otherwise it's better to just, you know, lie in the shadows and don't bring attention to yourself because you're doing something that's greater than you and you don't need to be, uh, necessarily like acknowledge for it, uh, if you start doing that, then it's, it loses its whole meaning. Then you're doing it to satisfy your own ego instead of your own spiritual yearning. You're not striving for anything higher. It's like uh, Despel Omega said, and uh, I believe it's third prayer. Uh, Cursed is he who removeth the way the mark of his master to please men and not to serve in secrecy. And in a strange, strange way, you know, your father's desire to become a priest, I mean... It's, it's a little bit hyperbolic to say, but you kind of fulfilled that in a particular kind of way, did you not? Oh, definitely, because I remember years back, we got into it. Uh, I had left a fucking catharsis CD out, uh, World Without End, and it's just because I had uh, I'd gotten out of school, I went home, and I was going to check my schedule for the next day or whatever, so I was going to just be in and out and going to go straight to work. Uh, he came home early and he saw the CD there and I wasn't planning on leaving it out. And he got all fucking pissed off and came, you know, like yelling like Elliot does when we would talk about this kind of shit. I'll help Brian Brimstone. He's like, yeah, I want all this devil shit out of here. Blah, blah, blah. Like this is fucking, I had just started uh, jamming in a band, uh, an old black metal band I had years back. And uh, he starts telling me, I don't know what you're doing with these, with these guys. If you're, if you're like a fucking satanic priest or something or what you think you're doing, but, this shit's wrong, blah, 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 blah. I don't want this devil shit here, blah, blah, blah. You're doing that devil shit. Get the fuck out of here. And I was thinking, like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? Like, what did I ever, uh, what did I ever give off to make him think I was like a satanic priest or some shit? But at that point in time, that's when I was, my satanic beliefs were starting to become much more fervent. It was no longer just like your standard, uh, second wave black metal where it's like fucking, Everyone says, hail Satan, and this is not, but they don't believe it. It's just there because they don't like the church. Whereas to me, it was becoming more, I started seeing it as my foundation. And I did start taking it more more to heart. And yeah, I guess you're right in a way. I did kind of fulfill that role. Because now, especially like with Nick Zool, when we're playing live, it feels like we're leading something. You know, when I play, I don't really see any faces in the crowd anymore. It's just like a shapeless mass all i see is like figures but i don't really uh see anybody else 
And when we're playing live, there's a lot of energy involved. I'm giving off a lot of energy. The crowd gives it back to me. And the more they give back, the more I give them. So it's a constant feedback loop and it just never ends. And it keeps going all the way throughout. And I've had a few people come up to me and tell me after shows that it's been something more than just a show. They feel something in the air and I can feel it too. It's, it's, it's tangible. You can reach out and touch the darkness. It's almost electric coming off, the, off your fingertips. Uh, I had a friend of mine tell me one time that uh, after we played in Chicago, she said after our set, the feeling that she felt was the same feeling when she heard Simon uh, Momentum Requires for the very first time. And then one of the other guys from Caveman Colt came up to me right after. And he said something along the lines of like, dog, I don't, I don't deal with that devil shit, dog. But when you guys were playing, I fucking felt the devil in me. And I told him that's the exact fucking reaction that we're looking for. We're not missionaries, not here to fucking change anybody else's viewpoints. Uh, this is our path that we do for ourselves. If somebody else starts aligning with that, more power to them. But we're not out to fucking change your mind. But if we ignite something like that in you, that's exactly what I guess we're here to do in a way. If anything, we're igniting it for ourselves. And if the fire spreads to others, you know, like I said, more power to you. Has your father ever seen you play before? <laughs> Fuck no. Or at least not <laughs> at least not uh, any of the death metal shit that we do, you know? I remember my, my mom had told me years back one time, she's like, can I ever go to one of your shows? And I told her, nope. And she was like, why not? And I told her, well, because we don't play Dave Clark 5, you know? We don't, we don't play the Beatles, all the other shit that I listen to and that I like to play. You know, I've played music for my parents before, uh, you know, stuff that we all like, Jim Croce, you know, Beatles, Dave Clark 5. Buddy Holly, stuff like that. That's stuff that we can connect with and, you know, enjoy together. But I'm not going to fucking go put on Rain and Blood and start playing fucking Altar of Sacrifice, Angel of Death. You're just going to be like, what the fuck? And I think the, the heaviest thing I ever showed my parents was uh, I showed my mom Opeth uh, probably like half a lifetime ago. But I showed her a Damnation album because I knew she would like that because it's clean music. Apparently, my dad actually liked some of those songs, too, and I was pretty taken aback by that because a lot of OPEP material is still written in, like, minor keys and a lot of diminished stuff. It still has, like, that darker sound to it, but apparently he liked it a lot. And then we were watching the uh, that the live DVD, of, uh, I think it's called Lamentations, and uh, the first set, the first half of the set is All Damnation, and then the second half, they played Deliverance, so my mom heard what Opeth actually sounds like, you know, Michael's growls and all that. And she was like, whoa, where did that come from? I told her, yeah, that's why I don't show you this kind of stuff because you're not going to understand it. Like, you think it's all this fucking, like, Opeth is not fucking satanic at all. I was like, she thinks everything is satanic. I was listening to Mountains Madrigal from Older around the same time. And, you know, it's all clean acoustic music it's all sung in norwegian apparently they recorded it in the forest and she heard it and she's like oh it's like a bunch of devil worshippers out in the woods and i was like why she said well i don't understand what they're saying and it sounds like they're speaking in tongues and i was like well yeah they're speaking in norwegian that's their tongue that's their native language it's like what if they they listen to us speaking in spanish and they think the same thing you know like, just because they're speaking another language doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil or satanic and all this but they were raised like that for so long, you know, can't change your mind on that. So when it comes to like 
but death in the black metal, I don't show them any of that out of respect for them. And also because it, you know, there's no, uh, there's nothing for me to gain by showing them all that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing that I need to be involved in and it's nothing that I need to show them as well. It's, it's for myself. So I don't ever bring that up to them. It's kind of an impossible conversation to have, but ideally, you know, trying to explain like to your father an album like World Without End or yeah. Salvation. I mean, that actually is closer to, I don't want to say his beliefs, but you know, that method than like the Slayer and the other things. But I guess, I mean, how do you have that conversation? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what I was thinking too, especially with, with albums like World Without End and Salvation, because it's nothing but pure devotion. And like I said, proselytizing, it's uh, like preaching to the choir in a way. It's satanic music for Satanists. It would be the same thing as him listening to the CDs of the Benedictine Mons. It's Christian music for the Christians. So it's just like opposite, opposite sides of the spectrum, but it's the same ideal being portrayed. I mean, do you feel that you could be doing the work you do now without that upbringing? I would assume not, right? Uh, might be able to, but it certainly wouldn't has manifested in the way that it has now because that in a way laid, laid the foundation, laid the groundwork for what I'm doing now. Uh, when I was working at that, uh, that occult shop, we sell a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian items as well. We, you know, we had like candles for the saints and there were different, uh, necklaces. And, uh, we came across the same, uh, the same Benedict medal. And it has a lot of stuff written in Latin. And I was trying to learn. I always try to learn everything I can to begin with. But I was trying to learn exactly what it said in Latin. Because, I mean, I need to be able to sell this to people. Or, like, I need to know what we have in stock. So I figured out, or I did my research, and I found that it's like a, an exorcism ritual. So I was reading it off. And my coworker, when you hear me speaking in Latin, it's like, I've always been... I guess good with languages, at least when it comes to like, if I can read them, I can pronounce it and speak it. So I was reading it off like rapid, almost like if I could speak Latin, she told me, Oh shit. sounds like, uh, you're, I thought you were about to summon the devil right now. And part of that is because of the upbringing that I had, you know, I've always had this reverence for things like, you know, your rituals, your ceremonies, your texts. It's not just a bunch of words that you say, like, like in the movie, The Ninth Gate, when they're doing the, the Order of the Silver Serpent is doing their ceremony towards the end, and they're trying to summon the devil, and Boris Balkan comes in, and he's just telling them, mumbo-jumbo, mumbo-jumbo, because he knows what they're saying, which is bullshit, and that's the way a lot of people see this. They think that, like, the words and the rituals, it's all bullshit, and it's not. It's very potent work, but it's because you have to put everything you have into it. That's the only way it means anything you start having that self-doubt then of course it's it's nothing you're just talking out of your ass you're just there trying to satisfy your own ego and because i had that that groundwork in the beginning that this is something sacred this isn't profane it just carried over and i've had more years and years of understanding with it the work that i do now has that potency behind it it has that that uh power of belief when people see us on stage you know we're somewhat in and out of our minds because you know we have to focus on the music and what we're doing we've been practicing so part of it is the muscle memory takes over but at the same time you still have to be aware of your surroundings and 
On the other hand, like I said, when the muscle memory takes over, that's because we've been doing it for so long and it's time to let loose everything that's been building up inside of you and everything that's outside of us, it's being channeled. And, you know, when people see us, they're kind of taken aback. For a while, when we were playing live for the first few years, I would get kind of annoyed that we'd be playing this insane, violent music and the crowd wouldn't be moving at all. It wouldn't be doing shit, like not headbanging, not trying to beat the hell out of each other. And I told somebody after a show one time, I was like, yeah, I wish they would have fucking moved more and had some more violence and, you know, chaos going on. And he's like, no, you don't understand, dude. The whole time you guys were playing, the crowd was just looking up at you almost in awe. They were just like, what the fucking hell is going on here? Because you don't see a lot of bands like that that have that pure power of devotion and that fire behind them. It's all just a, an aesthetic or it's a trend or something that you're trying to jump on, trying to be part of a bandwagon. Whereas people like us, it's not a fucking, it's not a trend. We're not trying to satisfy your ego or anything. This is true belief. And this is how we uh, show our belief. But we're on stage. It's everything that's inside of us just comes, you know, bursting forth. It's like the Leviathan has been unchained from the deeps. And it comes out for revenge. And we're also at an interesting time, culturally speaking, where if you show like honest belief in something, it makes people nervous. Yeah. And that's, I think that says so much about just everything that we're doing these days in this society. But it's also interesting. Um, it gives you a certain power over people too. And I mean, how do you see that unfolding as you go? Oh, yeah, definitely, like, especially nowadays when it comes to Satanism, like, everybody's a fucking Satanist nowadays, but it's all fucking bullshit. It's, uh, I can't even truly pinpoint where it all started other than, say, the church is Satan and all its other offshoots, but now Satanism is becoming more and more accepted by the mainstream, and I, I see it in a negative light. You know, some people might not, but I see it because... There's all these, I guess, lesser forms of Satanism, weaker forms. Definitely, it's being dabbled in by weaker people. They think just because they fucking dye their hair all these different colors and they wear their black crap cult t-shirts and all this other fucking stupid shit and they listen to Twin Temple and follow the Satanic Temple online, that doesn't make them a fucking Satanist because all they're doing is just indulging their carnal selves. They're feeding their ego the spirit is withering away and just going to rot. When you see people that actually take it to heart, yeah, like you said, they're scared. They fucking freak out and they try to tear it down. So it's like, oh, that's not real. Blah, 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 blah. Or these guys are a bunch of fucking fascists because they preach might is right or blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it makes them fucking scared. And they do whatever they can to try to shut you down. But in the end, all they're doing is just giving you a, a platform in a way. You know, they fucking... They try to stand in your way, but they're never going to conquer you. They think they're going to conquer you, but when in, when in history has the, the weak ever conquered the strong? It doesn't happen that way. That's why they're weak, and that's why the others are strong. And fucking, you know, history is always written by, by the victor, you know, to the victor of the spoils. It's an interesting shift as well, because it, it's almost paradoxical. We're, say, like a band like Dark Funeral 
who somehow is seems to be losing steam with every year. But it's you know you know people can see that that is not genuine. But at the same time, it's like, how is that also going downward when it seems like that plastic kind of representation of that would mirror society in a way? That's always been a weird thing to me as well. Like, why would someone prefer your band over Dark Funeral when that seems to kind of reinforce the illusion of daily life in a way? I remember uh, I read an interview with Eric from Altain one time. He kind of fucking nailed it perfectly. He said something along the lines of, uh, like, one of the reasons that Waltain is so powerful is because they're so genuine about it. And he said, like, especially here in the West, you know, in, in Sweden and Europe, they have bands, you know, every fucking corner and all these amazing bands. So to them, it's all over the place. It's almost, like, saturated. Here in the States, you're a lot more hard-pressed to find people that are so devoted to it. And he said, you know, people are getting tired of all the fucking plastic bullshit. They want something that's real, something that, that's, that they can experience, you know? He's, he kind of fucking put into an analogy that says something like, people are tired of eating fucking plastic food like McDonald's, so now they want to go out and look for a real meal, something along those lines. But it's, it's kind of like that because people are, I guess they're starting to open their minds a bit more. And uh, yeah, it's like you can see when something's genuine and when something isn't. And if people want to take that step and start thinking for themselves, start seeing things that are more genuine, then they're going to look beyond all the, the facades. They're going to see past all the, all the aesthetics. They're going to see that uh, style over substance, it's just uh, it's a temporary thing, you know? There's a reason that certain bands stand a test of time and everything else just falls by the wayside, like Dark Funeral and fucking Dimmuborg Gear and all that shit. Whereas bands like Blasphemy and Vaughn and Necrovore and fucking like the old shit from Mayhem is always going to be regarded as the best because that's when they were at their most fervent, you know, like Blasphemy's been writing the same two albums for 30 some years and they're probably the only band on the planet that can do that and they've earned it because they fucking changed the world when they put out those albums. Uh, Necrovore, John disappeared after he did Debus de Mortus because Necrovore was already so ahead of their time. You know, I've heard people ask him, like, well, is there any more new Necrovore? He's like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of new Necrovore, but I'm not going to record anything until the walls start bleeding again like they used to. And I think that the time might be right for a band like Necrovore to come back because now all that plastic shit is starting to go again by the wayside. It must have been about, what, 10 years ago that Behemoth was on top of the world and they were striking out at everything and you look at them now and they've just become a total joke. There's a, there's a show, they've, they've hit the dark funeral aspect now. Nergal's out there making coffee and dog food and posing for Polish GQ, I guess, doing all this stupid shit. It's like, what does that have to do with, uh, with like Satanism? Yeah, I understand it. You're saying this, you want to go on your own path, that's fine, do all that shit. But that's just, again, it goes back to satisfying your own ego. What have you done to further your spirit? What are you doing for the Lord? What are you doing to further your own ascent into godhood? You're just becoming a king among men, and all kings are going to pass away too. Give it time, they'll erase your legacy at the same time.
Mm -hmm. And I guess you can only polish a veneer that's shiny for so long before you really see what's beneath it. Yeah, what's that saying? Like, uh, you can shine a turd as much as you want, but it's still a turd at the end, something like that. Oh, yeah. I wanted to shift to talk about embodying belief. And I wonder, do you see the function of your work? Is, is it possible to close the distance with God, with like direct provocation, with artistic work? I mean, is that even a thought that you've had, or is it just more of a kind of distance devotional aspect to it? There's a, there's definitely the devotional aspect to it. And it's like, if you want to see it in a, in a viewpoint of like the divine comedy, where when Dante finally escapes the inferno, he, you know, he passes purgatory and then he goes to paradise and he sees a prima mobile and it's literally God is so far away that he can't even comprehend God. That's, that's a certain aspect too, that, you know, in this human form, we can't, we can only go so far in a way, but my personal path, and I think I speak for some of the other OSI members as well, we're, we're trying to bridge that gap as well. We're trying to ascend into Godhood at the same time so that we can hit that notion of divinity or, or to become one with that aspect. And I think that on one hand, it's, it's too far away and it's incomprehensible to human minds, to human eyes. But at the same time, you can... You can't reach those those levels of uh, of communion, and you can tap into the into the divinity. And part of it is, I guess, provoking or at least working with the spirits, working with the gods, and doing what you can to merge your profane flesh with the divine spirit. It's like almost a reversal of God coming into Christ, it would be a way of Christ coming into God. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that you should just stop and leave it at that. That's why I've always had a deep respect for, for Eastern Orthodoxy, because from what I've read and from what I've studied, uh, Orthodox monks and priests try to understand the mysteries of God. They don't just do like Catholics or other Christians where they say, oh, it's God's will, and it's, it's not my place to question it. Well, it should be your place to question it. You want to understand the meaning of all of it. Even Kabbalah is a system pretty much based on trying to understand the mysteries of God and, and the universe itself. And part of that is because you have to get your hands dirty and do the work. You have to deal with the spirits and things that you're unsure of. And uh, I remember reading to an interview with, with Carl from Rekalian, and he said uh, something along the lines that if you've never been scared out of your fucking mind when you're utilizing magic, then you've been doing it all wrong. And it's true because things that we don't understand are, these are forces that are much, much more ancient than us. And it's very uh, very arrogant for man to think that he knows more than you know the eldest mysteries of the universe. Man can only go so far, but 
like the spirit, the divine aspect, it'll just blow you away. Like the same way that Crowley said when dealing with, with Corinthian, with the guardian of the abyss, if you're not prepared for it, it's going to drive you insane, drive you out of your mind. And I've kind of experienced something like that when, uh, when I tried LSD, I was on a fucking insane trip. But when I took acid, I didn't do it for like a, a party mindset or anything like that. I wanted to explore the mysteries of my own mind and see what's, what's hiding behind everything. I started seeing, you know, things that I've always maybe touched upon or scratched the surface, but I wasn't, I hadn't gone that far into it. And on acid, it just completely opened, opened my eyes to that world that I've been searching for, for for a long time. I was communing with the gods. I was, I saw the matrix itself and it fucking, it just blew my mind and it kind of, uh, it's, it changed my mindset in the last few years as well, ever since I've done it. And I remember at one moment, I was, uh, I was caught like somewhat in a loop. And I remember seeing the actual God, Bhairava, where I take my stage name from. And I remember looking at him and he was so gigantic that his face was as big as my entire body. And I was just like, holy shit. I was completely humbled. Not that I'm not humble as it is when it comes to the gods and the spirits, but to actually see it like that, it's just your humility takes you even further. And I remember he gazed at me with like this horrifying gaze. And he had, he did me the same way he did uh, Brahmin. Cut off my head. Fucking left me to die. And I remember it was almost like, like a wrestling match because when he took his sword, pretty much decapitated me. I fell down. And yeah, my head was still attached to my body somehow, but I was defeated. I was stretchered out of wherever I was, like let's say the cosmic arena. And I was just going to the back, knowing that I was defeated and everyone was around like cheering like all fucking the gladiator matches over. And I remember looking up at Big Rava, he was looking at me and he gave me a look that said, Yeah, you've you've been humbled, but it was more like, Yeah, you you already were humble, but it's this is to make sure that you know your place. After that I started going into another like kind of loop. I thought I was dissolving into nothingness and I could see like my vision was just becoming almost like a, when a VHS tape is, is warped and you start seeing all the tracking lines and everything and it's, everything's glitching out and I was just stuck and I couldn't move. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lord Shiva appeared this time. And all he did was there was a piece of hair in my third eye. All he did was pull it away. And when he pulled it away, everything just, in complete harmony so that's the way i saw it was that my third eye was being blocked remove that hair my third eye was open and everything after that just became oneness and stillness with everything that's when i actually felt like you always hear this talk about like hippies and all this new age shit that everything is connected and we're all one but i actually felt that moment and it's hard to describe to somebody else or even put in the words because it's something that has to be experienced firsthand but that was something that I felt and it was just pure, pure divinity and power. Like I've never felt before. When you're playing live, you know, that feeling you get those aesthetic moments reaching towards God in that way, is it possible to achieve that in your normal life as well? Or is it only something that could be glimpsed at through the artistic work? It's, 
I guess it's most easily glimpsed in the artistic sense, especially when we're on stage, but it does come through in our day-to-day life, as well, at least my day-to-day life, personally. Uh, I've always lived a very aesthetic lifestyle, and I don't like to take pleasure in a lot of, you know, I don't have a big fucking TV, a uh, flashy car, fucking flashy clothes, all this other stupid, you know, it's just window dressing. Uh, there's been times where, like, say, I've gone with my little brother, and uh, before we had the temple, we used to have uh, storage units around town where we would we would practice. And for all intents and purposes, those places were our temple at the moment. It's it's the best we could do. But you know, our our, our storage units were set up like you know, we had we had all our practice stuff ready, and you know, we had certain things that there was just you know, stuff taking up space in our own homes. So we would move it out of the way. But there was definitely a very, uh, we try to set it up as a very uh, ceremonial place. At the same time, we had altars everywhere. We had our bones and fetishes. We had our statues everything set up, uh, icons, what have you. And there'd be times where we weren't doing anything and we just decided, hey, well, let's, let's go over there because, you know, we could go whenever we wanted. Let's go there and instead of, you know, doing music or practicing or something, let's go there and actually let's put in our, our spiritual work at the time. Instead of doing the musical work, let's do this. So I remember the first time I was with my little brother and we kind of did a ceremony there. I had carved the name of Samael into my chest, which is something I've done throughout the years. So it was time to do it again. I guess seal my packs and you know offer my blood. So the best thing to do, of course, is we put on Samael, I put on worship him. He was doing his own thing. He was meditating, doing his own whatever he was going to do. I went and I took a, an exacto knife and I just carved myself and just let the blood flow, left the blood over the blade, put blood on the altar, left the blade on the altar itself. And I remember he was doing his own thing. And I guess once he finished, he saw me doing it and he took a picture of it, but he was just staring at me in shock that I was just kind of going at it. Didn't, I was just completely focused on the task at hand. It was nothing else that mattered in that moment. So it was almost like becoming a sacrificial animal, sacrificing my blood for my holy guardian angel. And I've done things like that throughout the years too with the old band I was in, uh, Malavolde. Our very first proper show, we went to play and I asked my guitarist to paint the name of Shatan on my forehead, on my course paint, but in my blood. So what I did was I cut my knees open because it was symbolic of me genuflecting on my knees for my God and the blood is coming. So I took that blood and he painted on my forehead and I remember he was watching me you know, cut my knees open and I had to go you know, pretty deep to, to at least open the wounds and get some blood flowing. And he was like, oh shit, because he'd never seen anything like that either. I mean, we would jam together and hang out all the time, but I guess his devotion hadn't gone to that extreme yet. He'd never opened his flesh for Satan. I was there doing it, and it wasn't the first time I'd done it. And I told him, all I need you to do is write it for me because it's going to be written in Hebrew. I don't fucking speak Hebrew. I don't write Hebrew, and I certainly can't do it in a mirror backwards. So that's the only reason that I needed him there. And he was just completely taken aback. 
suffice it to say, we don't, we don't jam anymore. And that's part of it because his devotion was never going to reach the lengths that we go to. So he was, I guess he's never been ready to be the sacrifice or he's not ready to sacrifice anything of himself just yet. And those moments are always the most interesting ones. It's, it seems like you're almost alone with God in those types of moments, some kind of direct line when you do acts like that. That's precisely how it feels. And I'm wondering, how does that tie into the next question I had for you, which is, what is the defining moment of truth in your life? Is it something related to that, or is it something entirely different? I was thinking on that earlier, and I was trying to, trying to find a defining point and for the longest time, I couldn't really think of anything. And then it dawned on me that there's actually maybe two defining points because a lot of this is more like it's a gradual evolution where you can't just, you know, pick one moment. Oh, that's where it all happened. And, and then it took off from there. But there are two moments that I can really, I guess, pinpoint in a way. They're more substantial than others. When I was, uh, I, 15 or 16, I believe, uh, since I was raised Catholic, my parents made me go to confirmation. At the same time, my brother was in the army, and this was right after 9-11 and all that shit happened. He was stationed in upstate New York. So right after that happened, they shipped him over to Kosovo. So he was over there during Christmas and all the holidays, and I remember he couldn't talk to us for days at a time because he would tell us that he was out there in the mountains by himself, you know, trying to keep an eye on things. And he would tell me sometimes he was nervous because there's a lot of Muslims out there. And he said that the PLO was, had a very big influence over there. So he was kind of nervous about what could happen. So after all this was over, he was finally coming home, but he was coming home the same day that I was going out of town for confirmation that we had to go on some stupid retreat. And I remember telling my mom to him, and like, no, I'm not going to go. I want to stay here. I want to see my brother. I haven't talked to him in months and months and months and blah, blah. And she said, no, you have to go. You have to go. So I was fucking forced to go out there. And it was, um, you know, you, we went out into the, into the forest. There was a, a camp or whatever it was. And it was pretty much like a, a weekend to get close to God and all sorts of bullshit. And I just felt like, ah, fuck this. This is, this is stupid. This is not what I... What I believe in it all. I don't give a fuck about any of this. But as we were doing it, as we got towards the end, you know, we finished our shit, and I was like, I just want to get sober and done with. There were some people giving like testimonials, I guess, or just speaking about their life. And I remember it was uh, this guy that I had for a lot of classes that I knew for a bunch of years. He started telling us about his life, like he just opened up. He started breaking down because he started telling about how fucked up his life really was. I was like, holy shit, man! Like nobody knew how bad his life was because he was always, you know, very happier the fuck he was like the, the the joker and he would always make everybody laugh and shit he was like the trickster person in class and then i was like holy shit man like this guy has a pretty fucking a pretty rough life and this is pretty much what's getting him through so i started seeing more like okay well maybe this isn't such a bad thing you know there that kind of goes back into like you see past all the all the things at face value and you start seeing like the benefits behind behind all the, the window dressing so when we came home, I had this different thought in my mind. It was like, if I ever did, uh, I guess, like, give myself to God in a way, I said, it's going to be on my own terms. I'm not going to go to a priest and try to talk to the priest 
to intercede on my behalf to God. I was, especially when I was a kid, I was taught you pray directly to God. But why is it that when you're, you know, fucking all the way up and all the way up until you're 10 years old, you can pray to God. But then after that, oh, now you got to start talking to the priest. Fuck that. If I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to talk to God myself. I don't need a middleman. But that also didn't last very long because I started seeing like, you know, God isn't there. Like if God is there, that's not the God that I want to be involved with is a fucking egomaniacal sadist and just false. It's nothing that I believe in. As those thoughts started carrying me through more and more, I remember vividly being in a math class my junior year, maybe about two years later, and I was really getting into black metal very heavily at the time. And I was always thinking to myself that I took the Satanism as well, like at face value, the same, the same, the same thing. And I thought, oh, this is all bullshit. It's, it's the same crap. They're just saying, you know, saying they're, they're praising God the same way that the fucking Christians do. And I, I thought it was stupid shit. And I said, if I ever give myself to anything, I devote myself to death because death is the one thing that nobody can escape. And it's the most potent force there is. And from there, that moment just clicked in my head. Like, holy shit. It was almost like I reached nihilism in that moment. And from there, I remember everything my entire world, you started going towards death, but not like in a morbid, macabre way, like, you know, the, the, the weird kid at school. It's more like it was the veneration of death. It's, this is a high, the highest power. It's a, the greatest aspect. And from there, that shaped my mind until the years came on. I started listening to more bands like Despel Omega and Antaeus and Catharsis, bands that were so devoted to Satan, to the devil, I started realizing that, oh, there is something much more powerful than, say, bands like Dark Funeral. These are these are the, the fucking fakes. These bands are the real deal. And that's when I started slowly uh, bridging the gap between, like, death worship and Satanism. And then I started accepting the devil into my life. And then I realized that the devil and death work hand in hand, but the devil is the key to death. And ever since then, that's pretty much informed my entire worldview. Everything else is shaped off of that. And it's just, it's pretty much, I started walking a narrow path and more paths started opening up to me, but they all lead to the same place. And it's always been because of those, those moments, I believe, you know, once you learn that you can commune with the divine by yourself, you don't need an intermediary. And then you start understanding what truly resonates with you, what, what you worship, what, what you want to aspire to. That's, you know, like, it's, it's almost like realizing your true will. I'm interested in that gap you bridged between death worship to devil worship. Do you see death as a function of the devil or, you know, how do you bridge that gap in your mind? In a way, it's like chaos is the the true form. That that's where everything spawned from. Everything spawned from death. At least the way I see things, it was just, you know the great nothingness, and that's where everything came from. That's where you know from Ein became Einsolf, and then Einsolf is Einsolvar. You know, so it's like from nothingness, uh, God came out trying to present no limit to his creations. And then he became Einzelfar, you know, limitless light. 
but that was just that's the demiurge it's not the true god the true god is is nothing is death void chaos and the devil was also there you know satan and lucifer conjoined in the darkness so in a way death is the wellspring of all life but death is also a function of satan and lucifer whether you see satan as an aspect of samael is the angel of death that is his sole function is to to kill to to bring people back to the void and it was because of you know, a lot of this is because of, of music with all the bands i listen to bands like mortus and despel omega where they they have such veneration for these aspects like i said it's no longer it's not child's play it's not a bunch of magic words or stupid shit these days it's not going to the mirror and saying candy man five times or bloody mary or some stupid you know parlor trick it's going to do it's something that's very it it's inside of you and it's very potent and it's going to take everything from you and it's going to take everything that you have to be able to understand it and to walk that path correctly you have to have iron will because you're going to pretty much devote your entire life to it and everything else in your life is going to be cast aside. It's going to be sacrificed at the pyre for your belief. And part of that is, is, you know, death is a function of Satan, of Lucifer. You know, Lucifer is illuminating your path towards death to show you that death isn't, you know, it's nothing to fear. It's something that has to happen. Perhaps if you've done your work properly, you can go beyond death. You can go into universe B, become your own God, ascend into Godhood. Maybe you just want to go back to the void and, you know, stay in nothingness. For a long time, that was what I was striving towards, was to just reunite with the void and be free from the banality of just, not just day-to-day life, but just reality itself, to just go back to the source. But as the years went on, I started realizing that even that is no longer the end goal. It's pretty much almost in a nihilistic sense. You have to become the overman, become the ubermensch, and strive for something higher than that. And that's where Universe B comes into play. So you have bypassed both death as a source and death as a as a function of Satan and Lucifer. You create your own realities. You create your own void, your own death, your own creation. You can walk among Satan and Lucifer, Beirava, um, Zeus, whatever god you you believe in, Tartaros, you can actually become a god, commune with the gods. You don't just have to just go back to the swirling primordial nothingness. You can become something greater than what you are. It does seem to be that death is the most tangible aspect of the divine, or whatever you'd like to call it. And it's, it's interesting that a band such early in the genre like Hellhammer with the only death is real, I mean, that really is, it's such a simple statement, but that is kind of the foundation of everything else. Yeah, that, that's something that I've always, uh, those four words, something that's always resonated very deeply with me. It's true, only death is real. Like there's that other saying, uh, there's only two contents in life, death and taxes. And, you know, nothing's ever going to conquer death. It's, it's impossible. No matter what the Christians say, that even death will be thrown into a lake of fire. That's not. That's not going to happen. Maybe in their skewed 
you know, world, you're in their own little bubble, they can be living there, but they don't realize that there's something much greater than that. It's not like, it's not like God was there before and then God created death. Death created God or God tried to crawl out of that murk. I think every man knows inherently that macro mirrors micro in every way. And like you talked about looking into space and the functions of the universe and you, you look at someone that you love on their deathbed and you look into their eyes and you can kind of see that even those foundational beliefs they've held their entire lives, I mean, those are paled in comparison of that moment. Like everything else falls away and it seems undeniable that, you know, facing death, it's the guillotine of every truth. Like yeah. That is the only thing there is. You know, you could argue that most religions are built around just that one question in itself is what comes next. And I think people really rob themselves of a lot of exploration internally when you completely put that question off entirely, which seems to be what most people do now. I'll live forever. And if I don't live forever, then, you know, something better is waiting in another lifetime of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and who's to say it's something better too? Like, quite literally, this is hell we're in. But who's to say that maybe you don't fucking go to something worse because you were so blind, deaf, and dumb through your mortal life, you didn't pay attention to the spiritual work you should have been doing. I remember there was a there was a guy I used to talk to years and years ago who was real close to me. He was almost like a brother. We we're almost like mirror images of one another. We used to say that. You know, we were very, very misanthropic when we were younger. Not that we still aren't, but in those days, it's like like every other person. You know, you're young and you're full of piss and vinegar. You fucking hated everybody. We always thought that the greatest, uh, I guess, justice would be if all these, you know, people that we didn't like, like the humanity as a mass, the way that we didn't like humanity, the best thing would be is if once they die and they pass away, their own hell is not necessarily, you know, hellfire and brimstone, but it's just them alone in a void, pretty much locked in their own mind. They can't move. They can't speak. They can't scream, but they're just trapped in their own mind. They're going over the, the futility of their life where they didn't, they didn't do anything. They realized that there could have been more to it, but now they're just stuck in this void. And uh, who knows? Maybe that's what's waiting afterwards if you haven't done whatever you can, you know. When I was frying on acid, at one point, my acid trip was pretty much akin to the Divine Comedy. I remember at one point, I don't know what the hell happened, but I felt that I was being sawed in half from the growing up, but at an insanely slow rate. It was almost like the movie Dread, where they take that slow-mo drug, and everything slows down to like, a second is about an hour's worth of time. So I felt that saw, I could feel it too. I could feel a saw cutting through me a little bit. I could just feel all my nerve endings and like my bones and everything just being sawed apart, just screaming, losing my mind. And I never seen my little brother just there laughing at me. And I was thinking, oh fuck, I fucked up. Like this is hell. Like, oh shit, maybe everything I did was wrong. And then, you know, later on that moment passed, I was like, oh shit, what the fuck? That's pretty much going to the bog of doubt. It wasn't like, oh, maybe I'm going to change my ways and I'm going to repent. I'm like, fuck that. It's just, it's a test, I guess. But it's something that you know, like, if you're on the right path or not, when you see that kind of, like, that horror 
you've experienced it, but you're still willing to go for it because you know that this is what you have to do. That's like, that's, that's, that's the strength of belief and devotion and faith right there. It's unshakable. No matter the hell that you've gone through, you're still going to keep going. And that's, you know, whatever's waiting on the other side, you're still, you're yearning for it. You're trying to get there and you're going to keep going once you get past that point as well. You're never going to stop. I'd like to shift and start talking about the aesthetic reality of you and the band as a whole. You know, where does it start when it comes to ideas and how do you see those ideas in themselves? An idea itself being a living thing, kind of some type of, I don't know, virus of the mind, something that's come from outside of reality that's independent of you. And I wonder, how do you see it? Is there any aspect of that to your own work? Yeah, definitely. Man. You can almost see it as like an egregore. Like, let's say uh, an exulcifer. That was... Um... When we first started in Exul, in its very first form, it was a different lineup, and uh, we were playing, I guess, just like black metal, but like kind of like in Cursus style. Uh, we had stopped practicing, rehearsing for a few months, and then we got back together again when it was myself and Axe. Then we decided, all right, let's do it again. Uh, Axe is not using to go to the drums. I was just going to do guitar and vocals. And we both just had this idea that like we wanted to play death metal because we're all playing in black metal bands, but we love like old death metal, like fucking Morbid Angel and Theocide. We wanted to do something like that. So when we first started, the first thing, like we looked at each other at the exact same time. So let's start doing some fucking death metal, but we're going to do it, you know, evil fucking satanic, Luciferian death metal. We started doing that once we came upon the name Nexul. He had this idea for, hey, well, let's call it Nexulcifer, like, for the demo that we were doing and it'll be like he came up with a name and i guess i had the concept in mind that it's like our our form of lucifer like viewed through our optic so that creature that you see on the exulcifer is almost like an egregore it's something that we were thinking of but it's it came from outside of our being because it's lucifer but it's being you know filtered through our own mindset and that's something that we're still going to touch upon with, with the later works we do, especially with the new album that we're working on, there's going to be, those kinds of ideas are going to be expounded upon more. And I guess it depends on the certain band that we're working with, but we definitely have ideas in mind of like, it's all based on our own belief and our own practice. We're trying to make that flesh in a way or make it, you know, give it some kind of a tangible presence, whether it's music or with the art, and it's like, say if we have a certain ceremony in mind, that's what the music is going to be written about, like how, how the ceremony would sound like or what it should be portrayed in the, in the lyrics. So it's definitely something that comes from within us, but there's no denying that there's times where inspiration strikes from elsewhere. It's just like it's pure divinity. And I've had that happen numerous times when I first wrote the lyrics for Transformation of Poison and Light, those were some of the earliest Nexola lyrics I ever wrote. And they're still probably my favorite lyrics because they pretty much describe what I feel inside, like my own, I guess, pathwork of alchemy that I'm working towards. But it was such like divine inspiration that when, once it hit, I knew I had to capture it and write it down. And those lyrics didn't really come from me. It was like, it was an idea that I had in mind, but it was just the idea that was there. Whatever I wrote came from elsewhere. 
we're also working on some material that could manifest as a split with Demon C. And one song that I wrote, which is almost in the same vein of, of transmutation because they're both written about Samael and Lucifer, the same thing happened. It was about two in the morning, I was driving home from work. And on the way home, just lyrics started forming in my head and they started flowing together really well. So as soon as I got home, I pulled out my notepad or my phone, whatever I had at the time. And I started writing these lyrics down. I was writing lyrics for about 20, 30 minutes straight all the way through. And those lyrics haven't changed to this day. And it's been about six or seven years that those lyrics have been there. And it was just perfection. There's no way I could go back and ever change those lyrics. It was like, you know, capturing lightning in a bottle. That was a form of just, I remember X, I mentioned it to XS and he said something that like, yeah, it was like, you were like a lightning rod. I told him that's exactly what it was. It was like, I was a lightning rod that was hit by the lightning bolt of Satan because a lot of those lyrics deal with, you know, I beheld Satan fell from heaven as a bolt of lightning. And that's exactly what it was. As I was envisioning that I was struck by the lightning bolt of Satan and everything came after that. I know you've told me in private conversations that there's a lot of this aspects of your work, which you can't even decipher the meaning of holy. And I wonder as you've gone on, I mean, is that even something that you desire or is that the kind of mystery that you have to surrender to, to really build upon it? Yeah, definitely. You just have to, you have to give yourself up to it because it's a brilliant idea and you're not just going to let it go. It's because you don't understand it. That's not at the same time. We're not going to, we're not going to speak about things that we don't know because then we're just, being false and being charlatans, but it's something that we can touch upon and we present it as a mystery. It's not like I'm going to present it as, oh, I know everything about this, this, and that in this subject. It's No, it's something that's hit me and I'm going to put it into words so that's something that I can go back and study later at the same time. I'm going to be discovering the, the meaning behind these lyrics just as much as anybody else listening to the music or reading the, reading the lyrics. It's something that you know, I've, I've never turned away knowledge. You know, I think that's the entire point of life, at least my life, is to learn as much as I can until I feel like I've, I've hit the end. You know, once, once I've gleaned everything that I feel I need to know, that's when it's time to take off and be done with it. And part of that is because you have to just, you keep learning. You never stop. You don't, you don't rest on your laurels. You don't get comfortable. And there's so much more out there to learn. When I was younger, you know, I was more, I was, I was still say humble, but I would be more arrogant, I guess, thinking that I knew more than everybody else about certain things. And uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but I remember Socrates said something like, they asked him, why are, why are you the wisest man? Or, like, how is it that you know everything? And he says, because I know nothing. And it's something like that because, I realize that as much as I do know, I don't know anything at all. And that's the entire point is to just keep learning and understanding, trying to unravel these mysteries, put them to use in my own personal life. And that's pretty much the only way I see it. That's the only way I can go about it. I can't force anybody to join me on this path or try to convert them or this is that. If they're interested, I can give them my, my viewpoint, but it's up to them to cross the threshold if they want to go that way 
I'm going to go wherever I'm going regardless because that's my path. I feel compelled to do it and I want to do it at the same time. So it's almost a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because this is what's going to make me stronger. This is the entire reason why I get up every day and go about my life. But it's a curse because it's going to be, in the end, it might be the only thing that I do and go about my life. Everything else has to be cast aside. If something else is getting in the way, it's, you know, I've, I've lost jobs. I've ended relationships. This is that. I've pretty much ruined my, my life like as a normal person, but I wouldn't have it any other way. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I wouldn't change anything in my life up to this point now because this is exactly where I need to be. And if something was different in the past, who knows, I might not be here right now in the exact same place where I'm supposed to be. And I wouldn't change that for anything. In this artistic process, when you're channeling these ideas, do you feel like you have to kind of turn off the intellectual side of you? I mean, is there any brain work involved in this or is it surrender and then interpretation after the fact? Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely believe that you still have to, uh, you still have to put what you know to work. Like you can't just, it's not like a, a voodoo ceremony where the Orishas take over your body and it, it does everything, especially if we're going to be writing like complicated music. It's not like you're going to go to the, the guys from Bond and they become possessed and then they write an album like Boz or Baracletus. They still have to have the know-how and the means to pull this off. So there definitely is, you know, you have the seed, the idea and the germination, but you have to have the know-how how to, put it all together you can maybe see something in your mind but you still have to put the pieces together and you have to know exactly what you're doing like you can't just pick up a guitar and then all of a sudden sometimes it does happen where you can just start writing you know amazing race everything comes together perfectly but that also happens because you've been playing your instrument for so long you, you know your, your theory or whatever it is that you know you know your own writing abilities so it definitely goes hand in hand. You don't necessarily have to turn off your intellectual mind, but what you have to do is maybe surrender your conscious mind at some point because you get stuck in that, that loop of just overthinking and it just keeps going and you just, you're just running around in circles. Sometimes you have to just stop, take it all in, and then whatever flows, you know, just let it happen sometimes that's going to be your best result. And that's happened to us numerous times. So how does your process work? Have you been able to nail down with Nexul in particular a very defined process of point A to point B, or is it different every time? Um, we, we have, in a way. Like we used to say that... Uh, well, I, know, I know X stands by this very wholeheartedly, that there's a certain formula that we follow, and... To a certain point, I agree, but as we keep doing this more often, I don't like to say that we have a formula, or if we do, it's not something that I want to follow all the time, because precisely that, I don't want to sound formulaic, but we do know that there's a way to go about things, and uh, if we start straying too far from that, it's not going to sound like an exul, and that's when we have to stop, and like, okay, this, this would be better suited for like another project, or maybe we can take this piece of music and shape it into a different way and make it sound like Mixul. But we do have a we do have a way about going about things. And a lot of it has become uh, 
you know, we've been playing together for so long. Uh, the the core three of us have been playing together for at least 10 years. So, I mean, we already know each other's strengths and everything. We kind of know the way we all write. And then we know the way something should sound to make it sound like an exul. So, say, like, we do a certain chord progression, but it sounds too too bright or, like, too, like, in a major uh, scale or a major key or something. We'll take that same riff, but we just bring it down a bit and put it into like a minor key, like to a minor progression or something like that. You know, it gives it that sound of Nixol. It's still the same riff, but we just changed it to make it sound the way it has to sound. And uh, there are times where you know we we kind of we kind of deviate from that a little bit because those are the moments that are really like spectacular. Like I think the best. Uh, the best way to describe that happening was when we first did the Nexosuper demo, the, the very the very first one that, that comes out in the, the B-side of Side Wings, it was only myself and Axe, and we had those three songs done. Then when Lux joined the band, we decided to go back and redo all three of them. And all we needed to do was finish up Transformutation. We were on the last riff, but we just didn't know how to end it. It just wasn't falling into place. And uh, as we were practicing one night, uh, we'd already been we'd been at it all day. So Lux took off, and then Axe and I said, "All right, well, we'll we'll try to hit it like one more time or so, and then if not, we'll just pick up again tomorrow." So we used to jam in this little. It was a little shed, pretty much. It was fucking tiny. This was already about nine or ten o'clock at night, so sun's already been down for hours. Whatever residual lights bleeding through from the street lights. We closed off all the windows, you know, just hung up black curtains everywhere. It's pitch black, can't see your hand in front of you. We just lit a bunch of candles and we had a candelabra going. And then we said, all right, let's pick it up from this last place. And for whatever reason, once we did that, it's like we literally tapped into that darkness and we, we weren't like, we started going about a musical, like a cadence, I guess, that we didn't really use. But we looked at each other and when we did it, we both had the exact same idea in mind, but we didn't say it. We just started playing and it fucking clicked perfectly. We went from instead of doing like a a blast beat to doing like a slower, it was the exact same riff, but it was a slower, more thought out with the hi-hats going like in a 6-8 kind of time. And it just sounded more eerie and like ritualistic. And when we started playing it, we looked at each other and we just fucking we were both astounded, like, holy shit, what the fuck just happened? We played it, we finished off the riff, and then we stopped for a moment, like, what the fuck? We were both shocked that we had the exact same idea without saying it, like, let's do it again. Started running through it, then we added the ending to it where it kind of, kind of tapers off into nothingness and then it comes back at the end. And it was that one moment that we just decided, okay, we're done thinking over this shit too much. We just, went back to, to the darkness pretty much and just see, let's explore the darkness and see what comes out. And that's exactly what happened. And that part is still there. So it's almost like a purely instinctual process that moment. Like I know the truth by how it feels. Yeah, exactly. And that's why if you're honest with yourself, there's no better gauge than that. If you're just deluding yourself, well then yeah, you'll, you'll fucking pay the price later on. But it all comes down to how honest you can be with yourself. And are you comfortable enough with critiquing yourself or taking criticism? You know, you know, people wither 
you're like, oh, this this sounds like shit. Ah, well, fuck you then, man. Blah, 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 blah. You're fucking, you're just sucks too, blah, blah, blah. It's not like that with us. Like, we've always had the, I guess, the respect for each other that we don't pussy, pussy put around with each other. Like, if something doesn't sound right, we'll be like, you know what, dude? I just, I don't like that riff, but it's not because you suck as a musician. It's just, it doesn't fit. It's, I don't like the way it sounds. Let's, Let's see if we can morph it or something, or maybe we have to take it out, or, you know, maybe you got to bite the bullet on this one, take your riff out, or this has to change, blah, blah, blah. And everybody thinks that being in a band is all fucking, you know, good times and fucking rainbows and sunshines. It's not, man. It's a lot of fucking, it's a lot of fighting with each other, a lot of infighting going back and forth because everybody wants their ideas heard. But you have to know that, you know, not everything that you do is going to come out gold. You know, you have to be able to, to step back and realize that, you know, whatever you do isn't always going to be perfect and it's not going to make the cut. If you're honest with yourself, it's going to fucking flow a lot easier. And that's just, you know, if, if more if more artists did that, then art would be astounding the way it used to be. But everybody just wants to fucking sell out or they want to fucking compromise their own ideals for whatever. Just not be honest with themselves. I wonder how you speak about honesty. Does has Nexol played a role as a kind of mirror to your own life? It's kind of confrontational, you know, a forced confrontation with uncomfortable truths personally. Yeah, like if you look at the way that we portray ourselves in Nexol, it's like, are you only like that on stage, or are you are you like that off stage as well? Because people can see through shit like that all the time. You know, you have fucking uh, like. Fucking Nardroth, for example, this fucking guy used to talk about German misanthropic dark metal and this is an addy fucking hate everybody. I'm gonna burn this band's t shirts and shit. But then when stories come out that he's out there trying to be a fucking possessed maniac and firing off tear gas canisters and he hit the guy from Antaeus and then the guy from Antaeus is gonna fucking beat him to death pretty much. And fucking Conwolf has to go up and put his girlfriend in front of him and say, oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry, I don't know, it was a joke and blah, 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 blah. It's like, dude, I thought you were fucking missing, girl. What do you fucking care? I thought you love violence and chaos. Shouldn't you be willing to stand up for your ideals? And, like, what we do with the OSI, not just next door, but, like, the OSI as a whole, we have to stick to those ideals, too, because, I mean, obviously, there's certain things that we're not going to show on stage either, like certain aspects of our personality and shit. We're not going to be cracking jokes on stage because this is very, very serious to us. But the ideals that we you know, we live by in the OSI, we have to portray that in your daily life as well. Otherwise, you know, you're just being a hypocrite and you're lying to yourself. And what's the point of doing any of that? There's, there's no room for growth if you're just lying to yourself. So everything that we do in the OSI has to reflect the way that we are personally. And if there's something that, that you don't like, then it means, well, it has to change. And there's a reason for it too. And you just have to change for the better. It doesn't matter if you're no longer metal enough or this, this, and that, or blah, 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 blah. It's like, fuck that. We have our own beliefs that we live by, and we have to we have to strive by that shit. If not, what's the point of doing anything? It is interesting how the idea of self-reflection in black metal or any type of extreme music, I mean, even saying the word kind of gives me a weird, like, kind of visceral reaction to it, which is kind of confusing because it seems like there'd be so much value to that. Has there ever been moments where you've, you know, through your work, you've had to say, like, you know, what the fuck am I doing? Uh, 
Yeah, sometimes, man, like, especially when it comes to, like, the notion of coarse paint. You know, coarse paint has become something that used to be kind of sacred, but everybody's taking their own, I guess, take on it. Now they fucking paint themselves up like clowns. They just look like fucking idiots. They're like, coarse paint now is also viewed as a joke. One is like, this is something that should be looked at as like, uh, like look at the pics when they used to go on a battle and they would paint their faces up or just like any, any tribe, you know, they paint their face to go into the battle. They're, they're, they're trying to bring something out of themselves, like something primal, something atavistic. They're, they're surrendering to their bloodlust. Sometimes when you put on coarse paint, you just feel like, what the fuck is like, what's the point? It's just fucking, sometimes it feels stupid, but you have to realize that a lot of that comes from outside influences that people say, oh, it's fucking dumb. They look like pandas and they look like clowns and shit. Some people do, but, you know, when you're doing it for your own reason, when you're trying to, like, portray the embodiment of death or, like, you're supposed to look ghoulish, you have to look like something fearsome, then you know that, I, I guess, you're doing it right. Or, you know, maybe you have a certain way that you want to look on stage, like, your aesthetic has to be presented properly. We can't just go out on stage and, you know, do Nexol and, and basketball shorts and fucking wearing our, our Nikes looking like fucking Phil Anselmo, you know? There has to be a certain aesthetic and a look to it. And, like, just, like, we're, we're getting well-known for using blood as well. And I've had a lot of people tell us throughout the years, like, even in other bands that I had, like, oh, you guys trying to be like Watain? They're like, well, no, not really. If anything, trying to be more like Mayhem because fucking... Mayhem would use blood and dead animals and shit too. Like I used to have this dead bird that I found in a jar. And of course it took the idea from dead himself, but I found this dead bird and I put it in a jar and I let it rot for months. It fucking smelled like just putrid shit. But I was used to it because I would keep it in my car. You know, I would drive with it everywhere. So I got used to the stench of death. Once I opened it up at the show, people were gagging, getting ready to puke everywhere. But that's the way I've always felt black metal should be portrayed. You know, it has to have that, that essence of death and, you know, rot and decay affiliated with it. It's a fucking filthy genre. It's not clean cut at all. And I wanted to shift to talking about the cover arts for your different albums, how they function, development, and the kind of role that they play in the broader vision itself, having someone outside of the universe come in and work with you. Yeah, with uh, with an Exosuper demo, Axe had originally uh, done the the drawing for it, and uh, I gotta see if he still has his version around somewhere. I would like, I would like to to showcase it somewhere in the future. But his design is pretty much what you see on the the actual demo, except there's I guess more detail to it. Uh, the face looks more animated, I guess, and looks more devilish. Uh, the left arm. You can see where it's been skinned and you can see all the sinew and the muscle. So pretty much what we did was we showed that to Kramer and then Kramer did his own spin on it and it came out fucking brilliantly. Uh, one of the things, I don't know if it was a, an intentional thing that Kramer did or if it's just like whatever, you know, was part of his, his, ins his inspiration. But when you look at the, the left arm or the right arm, if you're looking at it head on, the hand actually transforms into three serpents. So that's like symbolic of the three of us that were on the album. So I said, I don't know if he did that intentionally or that's just something that happened, but it was amazing because he took our vision of what the way we saw Lucifer as the bringer of death. 
and he portrayed that perfectly. When we did Paradigm of Chaos, it was originally going to be done with uh, with Alexander Brown, and without going into details, this was like a long, drawn out process. We had in a we had another idea for the cover art where Alexander had apparently finished it, but I mean, this was taking just too long to get the wheels in motion. It was going to be a, a, like a universal hexagram and it had the letters NXL. So it was made purely for us. And then it had a, a Leviathan, but as an Ouroboros eating his own tail, then it also had the four alchemical elements on you know each part of the circle. And then on the inside, it was going to be a giant gatefold cover of Leviathan bursting out of the seas. And then in the background was going to be the actual Chaosifer Tower itself. I said, uh, this just ended up taking too long. And we got into contact with Marco Morav. And we decided that, you know, Alexander Brown already had his own idea. And we don't want to just, you know, have Morav do the same thing. So we had another idea. There was going to be the 10... Uh, Sephiroth arranged in a tree and then Leviathan was going to be kind of coiling around it and then maybe bursting out of the middle where the where the cliff of Doth is supposed to come out. We started with that idea and then decided let's just have the Leviathan bursting out bursting out of the seas and just pure madness and chaos. So he did that and since Marco also works hand in hand or he works closely with the with the artist with the artist the uh, who did the death metal sigil it was actually it was amazing to see that he actually added that death metal sigil in the middle of the album art as well and Marav he loved the concept of it and he, he likes the music a lot he, apparently he likes the lyrics a lot as well so he threw himself like headlong into the project and he just he did it with, with ferocious speed he told us at the time that when you see what I'm what I'm working on, you're going to see that this is going to be my magnum opus. So I was already, you know, frothing at the mouth to see it because the work he did with Bessio Rays is astounding. You know, Arrivals Tuma Cotola and uh, Seven Chalices. So when we saw it complete, we were completely blown away. He has, he added this, the Nexul Death Metal Sigil, which corresponds to us through Leviathan. Like, I don't think anybody else could have drawn it with such ferocity as he did. If you look closely in the in the borders, you know you can see the the void that we've always talked about and that we're gradually expanding upon with the next album. And you can see in the constellations, there's also the sigil of Leviathan. So there's everything is being mixed together. It's put together perfectly. And then when we we're gonna do the Side Wings album, the Nyog guys had met up with Josh McAleer at the Lupine Equinox, and we started working with him and we told him that we we're going to do the album based on Samael. So it was an idea I already had years back. It was going to be uh, Samael and Lucifer conjoined as like one, as one being. I took some of those aspects of that. We put it into the new album and we said it's going to be the visage of Samael. And I told Macler that it has to deal with the two pillars, the pillar of severity and the pillar of mercy. And on the left is the pillar of severity, and the pillar stands you know, tall, you know, unblemished. And then on the right, the pillar of mercy is being destroyed, reduced to rubble by the overpowering, uh, by the ferocity of, of the pillar of severity. 
severity goes hand in hand with Samael. So this was written as a tribute to Samael as the angel of death, not necessarily as a satanic form. So if you look at the album too, it has a sword uh, dripping with bile and gall, which is the way that he would take the soul from men. And that goes back to a lyric that's on transformation. And when we told MacLear all these different ideas and how to put it together, he just, he ran with it. And there was, there was no other way anybody else could, could do it as perfectly as he did. And it just, it captured the, the essence of the album perfectly. It sounds like, like it came from a crypt. It looks like it came from a crypt. He did that. He added some other uh, border work. It just finished off perfectly. And the glaring eyes aspect is what I love the most because that was always one of the, the depictions of Samael that I remember the most in the, what is it? It's a story of Enoch when he goes, oh, no, it's the story of Moses and he, he meets Enoch and Metatron, but he also sees Samael and Samael is covered head to toe in glaring eyes. And that's something that always struck with me, that always stuck with me. And I knew that it had to be on the album, it had to be a very striking feature. So on all the wings, all the eyes are there, you know, different variations of eyes. And I remember coming down from my acid trip and looking at the album art and I could see the eyes blinking and opening at different intervals. I could see his beard blowing in the wind, his wings moving. And that's when I knew that, oh, this, this is perfect. This is the way it has to be. That visage of Samael is just ghastly. I'm interested in the choice that you brought up about using Kramer in that role. I mean, of course, you know, he does have baggage in that way, but using him does kind of that stamp of approval in a way. I mean, is there anything else you feel like you chose him other than that reason? Well, I remember reading a review when, when a demo first came out, and the first thing the review said was, well, these guys are pretty brand new. It's like I saw they, they got some members from Niog and Halbatron. It was like uh, just the fact alone that, that Kramer did their art and it's a demo. Like it makes me think that these guys are hot shit. So let me see what's going on. And the reason that we use Kramer was because XS and Axe, you know, I've already dealt with Kramer for years and years with Niog and SSP. They've been, they've been really tight. Uh, I met Kramer in 2012 when we did a Halbatron show in Chicago and uh, we all hit it off really well. And Kramer's always been one of our closest allies. He's like a brother to us. So whatever baggage Kramer carries, we don't give a flying fuck, man. He's, we, we support him 100%. We always have his back no matter what anybody wants to say. They can go fuck themselves. They don't like the fact that we do with Kramer. Fuck them. And uh, they already, you know, we already had contact with Kramer. Uh, Axe wanted to... I told him that I liked his his version of the art and I told him it would be cool because it's just a demo too and it's going to look more amazing that it's one of the band members that did it but he said no it looks kind of like amateur and I wanted to have a little bit more of a professional look so let me talk to Kramer and see if he'll do it Kramer agreed wholeheartedly because he, he always liked Nick Zool and he's always loved Nick Zool. so he was like yeah I'll, I'll, I'll do it for sure there was no no ifs ands or buts so I fucking did it and delivered and you know I said Kramer's always been there we, he's seen us a few times throughout the years and, uh, you know, like I said, we always have his back. I know he's always going to have our back. And, you know, if anybody doesn't like it, fuck them. We could care the fuck less, man. Gamer's our fucking brother. If you don't like it, that's your fucking problem, you know? You can go fuck yourself. His spirit seems to match not just Nick Sewell, but the OSI in general. It's such a perfect symbiosis in a strange way. Yeah, fuck yeah, it definitely is. There was a, 
there was talk a long time ago that we were trying to get Kramer to fucking to move down here with us and we would just all operate pretty much under one roof. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously that fell through, but it would have been fucking amazing because I always felt that what he does corresponds with our, with our beliefs, you know, it almost goes hand in hand. There's just like, it, it's a total fucking brotherhood for sure. Like I said, we're, we're never going to fucking toss Kramer to the side, like say fucking Inquisition did. As soon as they signed a fucking season of mist, uh, they fucking kick Kramer to the curb because season of mist like, Oh, well, this guy's too much baggage and we don't want him doing your art. So they kicked him to the wayside. It's like, fuck that. If we ever signed a season of mist and they told us that we can't work with these other fucking people, tell them to take their fucking record contract and show it up with fucking ass. And we'll go with whoever we're going to go with. That's going to fucking support us and let us do whatever we need to do. What we want to fucking do. There's no way somebody else is going to tell us who we can and can't affiliate with. And especially someone like Kramer, who's fucking, you know, he's been with us since the beginning and shit. And he's, he's been with fucking, Excess and AX even further than that. So that's like that's just that's total betrayal and we don't fucking we don't deal in things like that. So I mean fucking Kramer is always gonna be part of our legacy whether people like it or not. Well we've seen what's happened with Inquisition. Yeah, and like everybody remembers when that shit happened with fucking Dagon, but I'd already given up on Inquisition uh years before that because I found out the way that they fucking dumped Kramer and that didn't sit right with me at all. So I was like, fuck these guys. When they played a Hell's Head Bash, you know, we played the same day we played earlier. Uh, I didn't even go fucking watch Inquisition. I just didn't want to fucking see those fucking guys. Fuck these wannabe rock stars. Then as the years went on, I said, all right, maybe I'll give them another chance because, you know, I did like some of the music and shit. I'll give it to them. They're talented and shit. And then uh, they played a show here back in 2017 when they were on tour with Bolon. And I got stuck at work and I was trying to get out as quick as I could to make it to the show. And my little brother called me and he goes, Hey, uh, Inquisition says that they're probably not going to fucking play and asked him why. And he said, it's because there weren't enough people there because they're playing in a shitty fucking dive bar. And he's like, yeah, well, they're saying that there's not enough people. So they don't want to come out and play. I was like, man, fuck that. So I said, let me try to get there as soon as I can. You know, we'll see how it goes. I said, I told him, if anything, I'll just go and fucking just hang out with Volon because those are those are some of our closest allies too, the Black Twilight Circle. So I went to the show and um, Volon played; they're fucking phenomenal. And then uh, Inquisition did end up fucking playing. They, I guess, they coaxed him out of the fucking tour bus somehow, and they fucking got him to go on stage. And after all this fucking talk, hours beforehand, where Dagon said, "No, there's not enough people. I'm going to play for these fucking." these fucking people that are here and shit then he comes out and he goes saludos amis hermanos de mexico i was like man fuck you man you weren't saying fucking hail to your brothers from mexico fucking two hours ago when you said that you weren't gonna fucking play so fuck you and they started playing and he didn't even do his like his signature bullfrog vocals that he's known for so it just sounded like any other black metal band i started watching him and this was actually the first proper time i'd seen inquisition and i was like literally right in front of him and i was just not Move or impressed at all. I saw one song, I think halfway through the second song, I told my little brother that I'm gonna take off. You can stay and watch him if you want, but I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna take off. So I went to the bar and I just hung out with XS and Eddie from Volon, stayed there for the rest of the night. We didn't even fucking turn around to see that Inquisition was still playing because they were just, they fucking suck. I mean, you could see how fucking fake they were too, man. Like, if that fucking spirit inside of you that you want to play is burning so strong. You'd go out and play regardless. We fucking did it. 
on the Cayman culture and on Easter Sunday in Baltimore, there was maybe fucking 10 people that showed up to the show. And this place could have held at least two to 300 people. So it, it's pretty disheartening to see that shit happen, but we've done before too. We've just been bands playing for bands and it's what we're fucking here to do. You know, I didn't fucking leave El Paso and drive all over the fucking country to get to Baltimore and not fucking play. So we fucking went out and we still fucking gave it our all like we always do. I don't care if it's one person or a thousand people. I'll still go out and fucking play. That's what I'm going to, that's what I want to fucking do. That's what I'm compelled to do. And for these fuckers to think that they're such hot shit that they don't have to come out and play for these fucking people and then he wants to try to fucking, you know, try to kiss their ass by speaking to them in Spanish. Like, fuck you, man. Get the fuck out of here. already know that you're a fucking snake in the grass. And a year later, I only found there's a fucking pedophile. So, fuck that guy. I just, I don't understand the concession, like, in itself, like, turning your back in that way, redoing all the cover arts, doing all these things. It's like, what what did you expect to happen from that? You're not going to become, you know, like we talked about for, like, a behemoth or a dark funeral. I mean, what is there really to gain? And at the end of it, you can't even look yourself in the mirror. Exactly. And especially when the album art is part of what made Inquisition stand out so much. Like, Inquisition was fucking known for having Kramer's art, man. Fucking, that artwork is astounding. It's out of this fucking world. They're going to go and get some other shit done. They have this new album where just the Reaper's like shitting on a mass grave or something like that. It's like, it's just, it's fucking ridiculous, man. It's just a fucking total, it's a circus. It's, it's ridiculous. That just shows that you don't have any fucking conviction, no backbone whatsoever. Especially if you're going to use like your closest compatriots like that and just cast them to the wayside. Fuck you, man. You're, you're, you're worthless. Well, let's talk about the OSI. It's definitely, in my mind, the most unique collective in black metal as a whole, much less America. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that came together, how that started, what you're willing to talk about? Uh, from what I remember, uh, like when I first met uh, AX and XS was in 2008. And uh, this was back in the fucking MySpace days. So apparently these two guys had said that they wanted to form like a, I guess like an order of some sorts, but back then they were very misanthropic too and they didn't give a fuck about anybody. So they were like, no, nah, I, I think it was excess. He said, no, nah, we, we shouldn't be going out and pandering to people or, or whatever, like looking for people. But AX was like, well, dude, this is all Paso and there's only so many people that we fucking know. Like maybe we do need to like at least look a little bit and see if, if we find anybody that, that can, you know, hang with us or match, match our ideals and shit. So I remember uh ax had got a hold of me through myspace and he saw the tattoos that i had just gotten one of them was the best omega sigil on my left shoulder blade which is the malign paradigm and then i got the watain uh temple of the black light legions of the black light sigil so he liked my tattoos and then you know that that's kind of like what set it off because he saw okay this is a fucking this is a satanic person this isn't just like a fucking uh blasphemous hail satan uh dipshit motherfucker so we actually met up when Watain played here for the very first time in October 2008, we started talking and it was just like, we were just talking about whatever. And we, we started realizing we clicked on a lot of viewpoints, especially about like Santa Muerte. We were talking about the gospel of Judas and different aspects of spirituality. We were talking for so long that we didn't realize that Watain had already taken the stage and was about to play until we heard the fucking song start. And then we were once like, oh shit. So we fucking, you know, finished our beers, went running the stage caught the show after that we, we started talking like yeah well, let's fucking make a band let's jam together so 
So Nexul started like that. Nyog was already around. Uh, AX is in the process of bringing Helotron back. So it was just pretty much, you know, we had these three bands going together. Uh, AX asked me if I wanted to help him with Helotron. I said, sure, that's fine. I started doing that. We would all hang out a lot together. We started sharing practice spaces together, especially like with our old band, uh, Male Volge. We started hanging out together more and more, and we just started, you know, kind of clicking together. And then uh, I, I want to say maybe around 2010 or so, we started deciding, hey, well, let's let's actually like create an order. We have we have three amazing bands already. We have enough people, and like we you know we all share members anyway. It just it just kind of makes sense, you know. Let's do kind of like. Not necessarily like the Black Legions because we didn't look to that for inspiration, but that's how it was going to be, you know. And at the time, we were also hanging around a lot with the Black Twilight guys. And the Black Twilight back then was just this huge fucking group. And it was like the total rebirth of the Black Legions. We said, let's do our own thing, but it's also going to become a, a satanic fraternity, an actual legitimate magical order. So it's not just going to be a musical thing. It went through so many different phases. You know, we had certain people that wanted to be in it and they just fizzled out or they flaked out. We've been doing this shit together for so long that we know who the diehards are, who's going to stand for it. Uh, there's other people that have talked to us about wanting to join, and there's certain people that would fit really well, but, you know, right now we're pretty much, we're set with what we have, but, you know, we're never going to close the door if, if somebody that's worthwhile and has something to add wants to join and fucking be part of this with us, because that's pretty much how it all started in the beginning. It was that if they were that, if, if they didn't allow themselves to be open, we probably wouldn't all be here together the way we are. But we do have to be open to, cer to a certain extent. That doesn't mean that we're going to start taking applications and, you know, fucking, you know, so go sign up at OSI.com, you know, pay your fucking monthly fees and you can join. Like, fuck that. We need people that are going to be devoted to it, like every aspect of their lives. And uh, I said, it just started taking on, taking on its own form. We started, uh, you know, coming up with sigils and different uh, manifestations of our beliefs. And, you know, before we knew it, this started taking on a life of its own. And it's almost the same thing like with Nexul, even like the death metal sigil, like Nexul itself has already become, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. It's something bigger than us. So what we really do now, the way I see it, is we're the ones feeding the beast. The OSI has also become a very potent force. You know, I have people message me from all over the place, you know, not just in the U.S., but people from all over Europe, too. And so I know that we do carry a lot of weight, and, uh, you know, to, to me, it's a... It's a I want to say that it's like, it's, it's an honor to know that what we're doing, I guess I know that we're doing it right, because it's, it's, it's hitting so many people, and it's, it strikes as hard as it does. Like, we carry so much weight now, and something is OSI-related, people are like, holy shit, when uh, they first announced Hell's Head Bash, Nixul was the first band to be added. And then when they added uh, Helbatron, somebody said, oh, shit. So they're going to add Nyog next to it. It's going to be total OSI. And sure enough, added fucking, uh, added Nyog, and that was it. We got to the venue the first day of the fest, and we sold out of almost all the fucking Nyog merch, which we knew was going to happen. Uh, Helbatron played the second day, sold all the Helbatron shit. Since Nixul is the newest band, we figured we would sell most of it, at least half of it, but we sold out all the Nexul shit too. And that kind of shocked us because, you know, Nexul being the newest band, we didn't expect that kind of reaction. And when we played, we were the, 
third band, I believe. And when we got there, there was still at least three to 400 people in the front waiting to see us, not just people hanging in the back and just like, you know, waiting by the concessions. They were up front waiting to watch us. And that's part of because of the OSI, uh, the brotherhood that we have. Like, if we have a new project coming up, just because of the fact that it's OSI members, people already look to it with a certain, they're expecting something, you know? And what people can expect from us is nothing but pure devotion. It's going to show through in every band. The thing that, that we've always, that's always amazed us as well is that even though we all share members in the bands, every band, every band sounds completely different and have their own sound. So even anything new that comes out, you know, it's not going to necessarily sound like anything else that's come before it, but because we're the ones creating it, we know that it's going to, it's going to make waves. And that's just something that we've pretty much dedicated ourselves to our entire lives. And that's why it's so potent. It's, it's not just a, a fucking gimmick or like some wannabe, you know, bullshit. This means everything to us and people see it. And, you know, sometimes people come to the temple and then they see the temple itself and then they realize, oh shit, these guys are not fucking around. Like they take this seriously. And we said, yeah, if you didn't, couldn't fucking tell that by the way we are already and then the way we are on stage, you just, you haven't been paying attention. And that's, that's what it is with us. There's no fucking pretense. There's no bullshit. We're not doing this for the ego. We're doing this for something greater than us because we have a greater path in mind. That's why we carry so much weight. That's why our band is so powerful and so potent. What is the actual interplay between that fraternity of bands? The way it started was just pretty much, you know, all the bands had their members and they said, well, we all, we all hang out all the time together anyways. We're all pretty much like brothers. We just come together and fucking, uh, let's, let's just, let's, let's group together. Let, let, let's join together and make, make ourselves stronger together, you know? As it is, when I, I remember I did an interview one time with, um, I believe it was Zero Tolerance, and this guy had asked me something on the similar lines. And I told him that the way I see it is that uh, each band in the OSI represents a different, like a sect in a way, almost like a, like a different sect of a religion. Like imagine the OSI is like a, like a, a religious branch and then each band is its own sect, its own belief. It's like Protestant, uh, Methodist, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, shit like that. So, you know, each band has its own beliefs. You know, Niag is just uncompromising militant Satanism. Nixul is, you know, Luciferian enlightenment, death worship. Helvetron is, you know, clephotic currents and things like that. So each band that's going to come out in the OSI has its own different, uh, its own spin on things, its own aspect that, that we're focusing on with, with OSI beliefs. And I guess that's kind of how it works because... Now in the, in the coming year and in the coming years, there's going to be a lot more coming out from the OSI. Like I myself, I'm already doing, I've fucking lost count of how many projects that are going to be OSI affiliated, but I've got at least, at least five new projects coming out. Of course, they're all going to sound different, but they have, you know, their own different ideals. So, you know, say this one member has his idea that he wants to, to focus on. He's going to do that. This guy has his idea. He's going to do that. So every band is pretty much just adding, adding to the faith, I guess. Like, I guess we're, we're writing our own, our own liturgies, our own litanies, and we're just adding to the, to the, to the fraternity, creating our own like legitimate magical order. These are our magical correspondences. This is our work. We're just pretty much adding to the library, to our legacy of what we're doing. Niagara was always a band that was 
incredibly interesting to me, especially when they first, it seemed like that era, maybe 2010, 2012 was really like lightning in a bottle. Like they just, I mean, they were everywhere at that time. And I oh, had yeah. a demo before that, but somehow it was during that time, it just exploded. And I wonder like, what do you owe that kind of success that seemed to come really out of nowhere? Is their fucking nature, like their uncompromising beliefs. Chaos uh, in Tejas is the best fucking example because this fucking uh, this idiot Tim Hefner had fucking he was doing that fest Chaos in Tejas in Austin, which everyone knows is a fucking liberal cesspool. So why the fuck you would want a band like Nyok to play there is beyond me. But he said that he handpicked every band that he wanted on his fest and that he fucking researched every band and blah 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 blah. So he asked them if they wanted to play, and they agreed. Like, yeah, sure, why not? It's a fucking, it's a big show. Uh, they agreed to our demands. Uh, Dizma and Black Witch were also going to be playing. So I was like, yeah, let's let's do it. Why not? Apparently, some fucking band called uh, the Mob or the Rival Mob, one of those fucking bands, some hardcore band, found out that Nile was playing, and they fucking told the promoter, "Oh, well, if you're going to have these fucking Nazis on here, uh, we're not going to play your fucking fest." So this guy fucking with his tail between his legs gets back to XS and from what I remember, he's like, oh, well, you know, they said that they're not going to play if you guys are playing and uh, these guys sell more tickets than you do. So I'm going to have to ask you guys to fucking uh, to step off or some shit like that. And XS said, nah, fuck that. We're not stepping after Fest. Fuck you. We don't want to play your Fest. You can go fuck yourself. Don't ever fucking contact us again. And if we cross paths, we're going to fucking beat the living fuck out of you. And from what I heard, this guy's never fucking, he tried to get us one time to fucking do Helbatron. I guess he doesn't do his research because he didn't realize it's the same fucking people. So he wanted Helbatron to go play with fucking, I think it was the Rites of Darkness Fest with Weapon and Vasalith or, or it was a show of vomitory negative playing, one of those fucking things. But we told him, nah, go fuck yourself, dude. Like, we're never doing anything with you ever again. And it's because of my obvious, like, uncompromising stance. You know, they're exactly like Kramer and shit. They don't fucking back down from people. If, like, if they try to kick them off, like, no, fuck you, dude. We don't need to do anything with your fest. You can go fuck yourself. We're not going to be affiliated with you guys. We don't need any of your fucking, of your support or any of this shit like that. And when they fucking left the Chaos and Theos Fest, I think Black Witchery dropped off as well. And then a bunch of people from all over the, the Texas area started hitting up the Nile guys to say, hey, well, we're doing a small fest around the same time. Come play over here instead of these fucking guys. So once they said, you know, fuck Chaos and Theos, Everybody else jumped at the opportunity to try to grab him. This guy was just trying to fucking, I guess, trying to horn in on the underground black metal scene. And he figures, oh, if I get fucking Black Witchery and Nihilog, I'll have like the underground crowd coming at me too. But he wasn't expecting them to fucking be as, as staunch as they are. You know, they're not going to fucking back down their fucking beliefs and shit. And, uh, you know, all the fucking controversy surrounding them, you know, fucking all the, the fucking the song titles, the, the connection with Kramer, blah, 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 blah. I guess people weren't used to seeing that shit back then. So it just became a fucking, like you said, they were everywhere, man. It was a fucking lightning rod. Anytime some fucking fascist, neo-Nazi shit was going on, fucking Nyog is, someone's pointing the finger at fucking Nyog and shit. And Nyog just didn't give a fuck. Like, yeah, fine, call us whatever the fuck you want. Say it to our fucking face. And then we'll fucking see who the real man is and shit. Of course, nobody's ever fucking stepped up to these guys because everyone's a fucking pussy. Isn't everyone in the band Hispanic as well? Yeah, that's the fucking thing that nobody pays attention <laughs> to, man. They're fucking stupid as fuck. White but, supremacist band, you know? Yeah, fucking a bunch of white supremacist Mexicans, dude. Bunch of stupid <laughs> kind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, man. They're fucking stupid as fuck. So it's like and, they fucking... 
like when, when we were with Herculean, I mean, I'm pretty sure we'll get into this deeper later on too, but when we were with Herculean and they fucked us over in Chicago, these that stupid uh, the Cobra Lounge was parodying themselves and patting themselves on the back saying, oh, you know, we lost thousands of dollars by fucking, by not sponsoring this show, but, you know, we have to stand on our beliefs and, you know, everybody's welcome and blah, 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 this is that. And then those fucking cocksuckers had a million people show up to their bar afterwards to support them. So it's like they probably have more people show up to support them for kicking us off the show than they would have made it that fucking if we had played. So they're whining about how they lost thousands of dollars. The only ones that lost thousands of dollars were us. And they were saying like, what the fuck, man? Like, you're, you're saying that you want to fucking make everything open to everybody and you just kicked out a bunch of white supremacists. All you really did was get a fucking bunch of, of fucking Mexicans, a bunch of Mexican-Americans, and you fucking just took their fucking food right out of their mouths. We fucking lost our guarantee. We didn't sell any fucking merch. We didn't play. We didn't do shit. We were already having bad luck with that fucking tour to begin with with some other stupid shit. So we were fucking counting on that fucking show to at least kind of break even. And they fucking took that away from us too. But it's like, what can you do, man? It, the, the fucking notoriety, that shit kind of spiraled out of control. And it was pretty funny because we fucking... We're in the hotel room debating what the fuck we should do. Everyone's all pissed off. And uh, AX said that one of the local news channels hit him up on Facebook for an interview. And then they were saying something to like, oh, yeah, we heard what happened and blah, blah. So we heard from the, from the, from the bar and we were wondering if we, can get, uh, if we can get your comments or some shit. And he just told them flat out, fuck off. Then they posted a news article about 10 minutes later saying that we reached out to the representatives of Helotron, but we didn't receive an answer. They're like, bullshit. First of all, you didn't reach out to the representatives, reached out to Helvetron directly, and you did get a fucking answer, and it wasn't the answer that you wanted. So now you're trying to save face and make it look like that, you know, we weren't doing anything. Like, fuck that. If anybody wanted to show up to the show and fucking fight, we we're all fucking ready to go. We had the shit planned out. We had told the Arcadian dudes that uh, they originally told us that we had to drop off for Arcadian to play. And we told them, if it comes out to the dude, like, we'll fucking drop off. You guys came all the way from Sweden for this shit. And. One of them said, no, fuck no. Like, we already talked about this in Sweden. We, we were anticipating this to happen. And, like, we already decided that if, if we came to this exact situation and they asked you guys to fucking leave so that we could play, they're not going to get either of our fucking bands. We're not going to play either. So, you know, those guys are fucking, those are our brothers too. We got their back always. They fucking, they stood up for us too. So, you know, fucking all this venue did was just disrupt everybody else's fucking lives and then try to fucking pat themselves on the back for doing it and shit. Fuck them, we got the last fucking laugh because now we're fucking notorious in Chicago and shit. And fucking, uh, when we went to Queens the next day, the only people that went to see us, we were, we were there with the satanic Hispanics. So we played to about fucking 300 fucking Hispanic people. And there were people from all over, uh, fucking Mexico, I guess like fucking Ecuador, all over Central America, Ecuador, fucking Guatemala, from fucking everywhere. Nobody gave a shit. They wanted to see some fucking black metal. They wanted to see us. And it's like in Chicago, you have what three or four fucking rich liberal fucking white snobs probably. They're all offended and shit because they don't know what they're talking about. Got us canceled. Like, well, fuck you, man. We fucking had a better night the next night, anyways, and shit. And nobody showed up to that fucking venue either because they know the satanic Hispanics don't fuck around either. So if anybody wanted to start trouble, this is a fucking crowd would have ate them alive. So I said they they think they're gonna fucking stop us, but they're not really doing shit. When I uh, 
first started going to shows in the Northeast around like 2006, 2007. And I ran into the first time and admittedly, I just didn't have the cultural reference point for it yet. But when I saw, you know, I was talking to these guys, like you said, from Central America who were wearing Graveland and Burzum shirts, you know, it, it, it has a certain yeah. kind of charm to it where I went, okay, this is, this is exactly what it's about. Yeah, exactly. Fuck yeah. And like to steal from Brujeria, I don't like Brujeria much anymore. Those fucking satanic Hispanics, man. Bean cheese, granulos, locals, man. Those guys are fucking insane as fuck. They don't give a flying fuck about anybody's politics or any of that shit. They're just there to cause fucking madness. Just there to wreak havoc. Those are some of the fucking best people to have. And also with that Urkalian tour, let's talk a bit more about that. How did that come about? It seems like an interesting pairing of bands. Uh, the way it was supposed to happen was Helvatron had originally been added to the Never Surrender Fest with Rekalian, but uh, I guess the fucking something about the labels and they could only get tickets for fucking XS and AX. So we were trying to arrange uh, like a little mini Nexul tour in Europe as well. That way, if a promoter could pick up the costs for myself and Lux, we could have gone with them to Europe on a small Nexul tour, end up at Never Surrender. From Never Surrender, we were all going to fly back home together and we were going to help Herculean Oracle bring some of their equipment back, like all their fucking the drums and all the other stuff that they use for the live show. But since we couldn't make it, we kind of had to scale that back down. And the way it all started was, I think it was Nyog had gone to play in Europe one time. Might have been Never Surrender as well. And Herculean uh, had played that fest. And I remember AX and XS told me that they were just completely fucking blown away by watching your kid play live and uh they all started talking and i think ax and fucking carl had hit it off really well and uh they were just you know they just fucking clicked perfectly so since urkelian has a slow doomy aspect to it as well and it's very ceremonial very ritualistic for them halbatron seemed like the fucking perfect fit so what we ended up doing was since we couldn't go to europe we decided let's still do this tour we'll help you guys with whatever we can they did never surrender we all met up at the kill the new world fest and that's when i met carl for the first time and you know i hit it off with him too it's that that whole tour was just fucking perfect man the, the camaraderie between both the bands was just was you know i don't think there's anything better than that you know and all the shows went off when, when we could fucking play, you know, they pretty much did go off without a hitch. Both bands complimented each other perfectly. And it was just a, it was a wild run, but it was a fucking great run at the same time, you know, for all the, all the shit that we had to go through in the end, the good did outweigh the bad. It was a fucking, it was a great tour and, uh, you know, it's good to meet those guys and hang out with them. So they've become pretty close with us as well. So those are some more, you know, allies that we can add add to our list and shit. People that actually do fucking matter. Those are people that we support in any way, shape, or form. And it was just, uh, it's just like the best of both worlds, you know? They fucking, they got the ritualistic version of the OSI and at the same time, we were still able to play all the OSI bands with Urkalian at the Kill the New World Fest. And those fucking two days were pretty chaotic as well. Carl, to me, has always been you know possibly one of the most interesting 
musicians in black metal, especially his longevity. Yeah. And maybe it's because of the anonymity that he doesn't get the credit he deserves, you know, at this point. I mean, what were your interactions with him? I mean, how do you see, I mean, somebody who's been around since the very beginning that is so incredibly influential yet is often never credited by anyone. I think, uh, I think Carl probably kind of likes that because, you know, it's like, it's, it's the anonymity he can keep to himself because what he needs to fucking do without having anybody bother him. And I know he's very, uh, keeps to himself a lot. You know, he's going to fucking go out of his way to talk to people and shit. You know, he just, he's, he's focused on what he needs to do. And the first time I met him, I'll fucking never forget this. So we had gotten to LA the day before Children you started. So, uh, cruel was there and the other person from Mercalian. So we hung out with them. And then I remember asking cruel, like, hey, is Carl here? I said, I'm pretty sure he didn't want to come out. Right. He doesn't go out very much. He goes, oh, he's, he's He's going to come tomorrow. He's still in Sweden. So we finally got to the venue. We are getting ready to play and shit. I was outside smoking. And I saw this one guy walk uh, into the venue. And I assumed it was Carl because I think Cruel was with him. And I think our tour manager said that. But I didn't know. So I was like, I'm just going to assume that that's fucking Carl. Then when we got ready to play, you know, we're doing this fucking sample. The fucking, the madness is about to begin. And, you know, the crowd fucking wild up. I'm already fucking losing my mind. And when I put my fist in the air to get everybody else to fucking, you know, give us all the fucking energy and just start losing their fucking minds, I remember seeing that same guy and he's just staring straight at me and his eyes are just locked in on me and he's just like pretty much staring right through me. I could feel his gaze piercing the back of my head. And as we're playing, I just see this guy the whole time just going apeshit, fucking losing his mind. Then after we finished, I went outside again. I was smoking a cigarette and I was talking to somebody and I thought somebody slapped me on the back fucking hard. Uh, what the fuck? And I turned around and oh, I was going to have to fucking, you know, get into somebody's face. What the fuck was that? I turned around and it was Carl just staring straight at me and shit. He was like, man, that was fucking amazing. So what fucking death metal or black metal should fucking be like. I was like, oh, thanks, man. It's your Carl, right? Just, yeah, yeah. I told him, oh, dude, it's a pleasure to finally meet you because I'd heard about him throughout the years from fucking AX and XS and shit. And of course, I've, I've known some of the work he's done with his other bands. I told him, yeah, it's a fucking pleasure to finally meet you. I could just see that fucking look on his face and he was just completely ecstatic about what we just did with Exul and because we since we were the first band of the OSI to start that whole weekend off and that whole tour that was pretty much just a sign of things to come and you could see it in his face that like if that's how it's going to start that we're fucking getting ready to do something monumental and after that yeah it's just that's how it was and you know we were just fucking we would hang around on Torilla you know everybody would be doing their own thing and shit I would talk to Carl, talk to Cruel, blah, blah. You talk to Carl a lot. Very fucking intelligent guy. He has a lot of fucking very interesting views on the world. And it's just, it's a fucking pleasure talking to him, man. Just to fucking, just to pick his brain and to see someone that's so fucking well-studied, so well-traveled and to just hear what he has to say. is just fucking, it was just a pleasure to fucking be around him and experience all that and to talk to him about it. You guys have gotten to the point, especially in Niagara, where just wearing a piece of merchandise or something is such a statement in itself that you know put a target on your back i remember years ago that zola jesus live video where the drummer i believe had on the length of his shirt on and just it's hilarious that cross-cultural you know punishment coming i think it was one of our one of the old myog drummers was the one that told us about that and it was either him or fucking xs and they're like have you heard this band called zola jesus and i'm like the fuck is zola jesus (laughs) so i played this video and we saw the myog shirt and we actually started laughing. We we're like, what the fuck? But it wasn't because of like the band or anything. 
because I don't even remember how the band sounds. I I might fucking like them, but I fucking know. But it was just like you said, it was like a such a cross cultural thing. I'm like what the fuck? It's like seeing Jim Croce wearing a fucking Slayer shirt. It's like it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, like, so we we've been searching for that video for a long time, but yeah, like wearing a Nyog shirt is pretty much like fucking. It's like Edward Norton pulling up a shirt, showing a fucking swastika on his fucking chest, man. You put that Nyog shirt on, and people are gonna get fucking pissed and disgusted. And all you can do is just revel in it because you're fucking morons. It's it's quite an accomplishment, really. Yeah, fuck yeah, it is just this fucking. Put on a shirt and watch people's heads fucking explode and watch them lose their fucking minds. It's 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 insane. And it takes so little now. I mean, a shirt. Yeah. It's but it's also, you know, their careers with OSI as a whole. It just shows you how directly that just refusing to play the game of apologizing or you know begging for forgiveness and these things. If you just say no, nothing happens. Yeah, exactly. If you fucking give in to everybody then you don't fucking, like I said, what's the point of fucking doing anything if you're just going to fucking not stand up for yourself and not follow through on your convictions? Like, fuck that. You got to fucking push back. Especially if you claim to be a fucking Satanist and Satan is the adversary and you're just going to fucking not do anything adversarial. What's the fucking point of doing anything? You're already fucking lost. Especially when the consequences are so low, really, like you spoke of. I mean, when has someone come up and actually made you pay a physical consequence for any of this? Yeah, they don't do shit. When we are uh... It was a fucking Arcalian tour, too. I want to say it was... Uh, I don't remember if it was after Chicago or before Chicago, but I remember the tour manager had said that some dude that he was in contact with or whatever had fucking sent him a message on his phone directed towards XS, and he said something like, oh, fuck that guy. He's a big fucking pussy. Fuck him. He's all, give me that guy's number so I can talk shit to him. Like, first of all, oh, you're going to talk shit to him through fucking text all you're such a big man yourself but he fucking told him that and excess said no don't give him my fucking number but you tell him that i said this next time fucking dialogue is in his fucking town to let us know we'll put you on the fucking guest list you can go to the green room you can bring as many of your fucking friends as you want we'll fucking square up in the back like fucking men we'll see who the fucking real pussy is so he fucking sent him that message and the guy replied back right oh no no man i don't want any trouble bro i don't, I don't want to fight I just you know i just want to tell him you know what i think and shit like, well fuck you then And it's almost a way now, especially in black metal, if you, you know, it's almost a barometer of being right in your message if you do get this pushback in this way. Yeah, fuck yeah, it is. That's that's how you definitely know you're doing shit right when people freak out. Like when we were on tour with Watane, just before, I don't know if you remember, uh, fucking Destroyer was catching a lot of flack in fucking California and shit, and actually got banned in San Francisco. And uh, what I remember happening was the same shit happened to us. They told, they told Altain at their venue that uh, you guys can play, but we don't want Destroyer 666 on the bill. And this is a good fucking point of character for Altain too, because I remember the NWN forums were around back then. So everybody was discussing this, what was going to happen. And some dudes all like, oh, well, if Altain has any fucking integrity, any morals, they're going to stand up for Destroyer and fucking pull out of the show too. And then some dudes all, oh, do you think the fucking the money-hungry warriors of Watain are going to fucking relent to the almighty dollar or some stupid shit like that. And then sure enough, what happened, like an hour after the news broke, Watain said, fuck you. If Destroyer doesn't play, we don't fucking play either. You can go fuck yourselves. We'll find another venue if we can. And if not, well, fuck you. We're not going to play. And that's exactly what fucking happened. They didn't fucking play. That fucking Antifa up their ass and they said, fuck you. We're not going to cave into your demands. So when we fucking toured with them, 
we've already had our own fucking bone to pick with Antifa. So I decided I'm going to make it a fucking point after we finish every fucking set. For Nexul, I end every set regardless with, with Heil Shaitan because that's my own personal fucking... That's my sign-off. That's my... That's my... Uh, my devotion at hand, I guess. You know, just fucking giving praise to the Shaitan. So I, I would always say Heil Shaitan. And at the end of that, I would say death to Antifa because I knew we are going to a bunch of liberal places. Like, Phoenix is becoming infested like that. Austin, we're going to the fucking lions then pretty much so i was fucking saying death to antifa at the end of every set but just because i fucking felt like saying it and then i knew somebody's gonna give a shit anyways and when we were in dallas i remember we were at the gas monkey and it was a big outdoor venue so apparently when i said that shit loud it fucking echoed even into the parking lot and the watane destroyer guys were outside getting ready and shit they heard us say death to antifa and they could hear it like loud as fuck so they were like yeah fuck yeah and then AX told me that when I said that, there was this little kid in the front that was watching us. And I remember seeing him throughout the show. He was a little fucking 16, 17-year-old kid, you know. He fucking heard me say death to Antifa, and he got fucking horrified. Like, oh, I can't believe he said that. He was fucking shocked. And I remember he had fucking told me I had bones hanging from my belt. And he was like, give me one of your bones. And I was about to pull a fucking bone out and just fucking chuck it at his face. It's a huge fucking, like, femur bone. But we were already kind of on thin ice at the time, so like, nah, if I fucking hit this kid in the face with the ball, we're probably gonna get kicked off the fucking tour. But I just had to fucking let it go. But he told me, ah, that kid was kind of fucking horrified. So I mean, he was already horrified that I said death to Antifa, and then I fucking hit him in the face. I would have scarred him for life. Either that or he probably would have become a badass after that, who knows? But yeah, fucking, uh, yeah, you can't fucking, you can't give in to these fucking people, man, because. They're going to be offended by something else the next day and next day. All they're doing now, they're starting to eat themselves alive, too. Like, they're already offending each other with their fucking, with how non-offensive they are and shit. So it's like, just give them time. They're going to fucking eat themselves alive. And you don't have to fucking pay them any attention. If anything, just fucking beat them with violence. They're not going to do shit. If anything, they're just going to fucking call the cops. But the cops are going to help them because they're trying to fund the fucking police. Police don't want to do a fucking... I'm gonna give a helping hand to some fucking blue hair who's been talking shit about them online all day. Fuck these people. And the part about Destroyer, which I think was the deciding factor in that whole scenario, was after, you know, all these articles were written, Metal Sucks, this or that, you know, member of Destroyer published the personal info of those, you know, journalists, and it was over instantly. That was one of fucking KK's shining moments, man. That was fucking brilliant. And then the guy even had to fucking backpedal. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to destroy you. Blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, you're sorry now, motherfucker. Well, if there was ever a charlatan, I mean, the guy who runs that, I mean, you're not even using your real name. You know, I just, yeah. I, I don't, like, what is this? Yeah, it's fucking stupid. And it's like, even the name Metal Sucks, like, these fucking people do make fucking Metal suck now, man. Like, Metal's not the way it used to be anymore. Everyone thinks it's this fucking brotherhood. Now everyone wants to fucking hang out and do this shit. Like, fuck that, dude. Like, you read stories from people like fucking Ariok and Funeral Mist and like Eric and all these people from the old days. The old days in Sweden was fucking popular with fucking chaos and shit. Every old fucking scene used to be like that. Fucking just pure madness and violence and shit. It wasn't all fucking, let's all hold hands or let's go to an Amana Mars show and instead of moshing, let's pretend we're in fucking robots like Vikings. It's just like the fucking metal has jumped the fucking shark and it should just be... It's, it just should be underground again, or at least all these fucking nerds should be weeded out of the fucking scene and just fucking beat relentlessly and t- turned into fucking men. 
instead of just overgrown man children, you know? That's all they are, just fucking overgrown children of fucking, fucking in an adult body and shit. Well, it's like cultural tourism, I guess, is what it's become. Yeah, fuck yeah, exactly. You nailed it. I guess that also begs the question, is that the transition of mindset that bands need to take now where censorship is actually a positive thing where, you know, you should be made to believe for what you say you believe and, you know, people just can't take it when they're confronted with what they're actually asking for. I wonder, is is that the mindset that just needs to come about as a whole? Yeah, it's like when they had the fucking, uh, was it the PMRC and then they had all the fucking parental advisory labels on the fucking albums? That was a selling point for a fucking album like, it was like, this is the album that your parents don't want you to listen to. This is the album that the president don't want you to listen to. Now it's that kind of same shit. Like, if everyone's being censored, it should be like, oh, this is the band that society doesn't want you to listen to. That should be a fucking selling point. Like, what they're saying is fucking has everybody up in arms and it's ruffling feathers. Let's see what's really going on over here. Instead of listening to the same fucking processed crap that's coming out, everybody ripping off bands and fucking trying to be all buddy-buddy and wear fucking pit vipers and this, this, and that. It's fucking stupid as fuck, man. It's like the old days are gone, but the old ways haven't fucking been forgotten. You know, there's a lot of fucking, a lot of people in the old guard that are still around and still fucking fight for that shit because it means something. And that should be coming back again too. Just start fucking, you know, if they censor you, be like, fuck you, man. This is something that you fucking obviously can't handle. This is why it's called extreme metal or extreme music, whatever the fuck you want to say it. It's extreme ideals being put forth. And of course, not everybody's going to fucking like it. If you don't fucking like it, you can go fuck yourself or show up and try to be a man about it. If you actually fucking, if some fucking nerd actually showed up to one of our shows and try to fucking fight, I would have more respect for them because at least they try to do something. Still get your fucking ass kicked, but at least you fucking try to fucking fight. And then who knows me from there, start growing a fucking spine and start thinking for yourself and shit. But since that point, nothing's fucking happened yet. Well, in that way, that direct confrontation, I think both parties would grow more from that than any amount of intellectual bullshit conversations on the internet. Yeah, fucking, yeah, it's maybe time for bands to start fucking, just start beating the hell out of everybody else too, man. It's fucking, let's make fucking metal dangerous again. Well, I remember when, when we were with Waltane, I guess Axe got in real close with KK too, and he, uh, he, KK told Axe that he was fucking Eric. And he asked Eric, like, why'd you ask these guys to be on tour? Because we were the newcomers. They didn't know who the fuck we were. And Eric told him that, like, I have a plan to make black metal dangerous again. And these guys are going to fit into it. When you look at it, they're with fucking Revenge, you know, Ares Kingdom, the Gile, a bunch of fucking crazy-ass bands. A lot of them have been around for years and years. If they haven't been around for years, they're hungry and then they're fucking ready to make their own mark. The same thing when we were in Tampa... They started setting up the the torches and the fire and everything. We're in a small venue. One of the torches fucking lit up like crazy, and it almost caught their banner on fire. And I remember thinking, like, oh, shit, man, we're going to die like fucking Great White. And I was like, holy fuck, there was an element of danger. And once it fucking clicked in my head, I was like, oh, shit, this is exactly what it fucking means. There's, let's make Black Metal dangerous again. You could fucking either get seriously injured or you could fucking die by going to this fucking show. And it just dawned on me, fuck it, man. If I die here, I fucking died going out, doing what I love, and getting to see one of my fucking favorite bands. Fuck it, man. Like, let's go now. Let's fucking go out on top and shit. And that's that fucking element of danger and shit. It's very sorely fucking lacking for any kind of fucking, like, engaging the crowd and fucking, you know, getting more uh, 
antagonistic with them. Everybody wants to go see a fucking show and then they're like, oh, how are you doing tonight on oh, this next song? Oh, I played it for your mom last night. She thought it was pretty cool. And everyone laughs. Oh, fucking shit's stupid as fuck. I saw Niall uh, about two months ago and I lost all respect for fucking like Niall and all these other kinds of bands, like big bands like that because they're doing the same shit when those bands used to have, they were at least somewhat dark, you know, they meant something. Everybody's just trying to fucking pander to the crowd and be bros. Like, fuck that, man. I want to see fucking, I want to see people get kicked in the face. When I went to see Theocide in 2006, I believe, fucking Glenn Ben was playing with Vital Remains too. So it was Vital Remains and then Theocide back to back. That shit was fucking crazy as all fuck. Got my ass handed to me in the pit, thought I fucking broke my nose. And fucking went to go put my face back together and make sure I had all my teeth. And Glenn Ben gets on the mic, starts talking shit. Yeah, a bunch of motherfuckers got fucked up in the pit, blah, 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 a bunch of pussies and shit. And I was like, I was in the restaurant, fuck you. And he goes, sauce, dead by dawn. So I fucking just went running back and I jumped into the fucking pit. I'm not a fucking big guy, but I heard that shit and it just fucking fired me up. I was like, I don't give a fuck if I get knocked down again and they fucking stomp all over my face. I want to be part of this fucking madness and shit because he inspired it too. Oh, fuck these motherfuckers. They can't handle it. This is the last song. Fuck that. Jump right back in. Just fucking. Giving all you got, going to fucking hell and back. That's the way it should be. They're just fucking hanging back at the shows, just fucking doing nothing and shit. You got to get in it. That also brings to mind the Euronymous quote I know we're both fond of, where it's, you know, we need less bands, we need more terrorists. Fuck yes, exactly. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's varying degrees of how literal you can take that, I guess. But, I mean, the essence of that is everything, really. Yeah, fuck yeah, because... If you look at it, black metal itself is a genre that was raised on fucking terror. When it first started, people were fucking just shocked to hear bands openly fucking singing about Satan and shit like that. And then it starts escalating into fucking churches being burned down. There's fucking dead animals and blood on stage. Fucking people are getting killed left and right. That's fucking terror in its, in its purest form. People are afraid to fucking go to shows. They're like, what's going to happen? Am I going to get fucking stabbed and shit? That's what it should be. And as I said, to varying degrees, you know, there's fucking, there's all kinds of shit you can do fucking make your mark. And it seems like black metal could definitely use more of that. Again, it's almost like there needs to be another Gigi Allen or something close to it. You know, you have to fucking get naked and throw shit at the crowd, but do something. There's got to be a fucking, there's got to be a spark to set it off. And I think Watain was probably or right now probably is the closest thing. Again, going back to that Tampa show, that was pretty fucking crazy. I guess some guy had been taking pictures of Pele and he had a splash on and Pele yelled at him, turn your fucking flash off and the guy didn't listen. He fucking took a picture again and Pele just walked up the stage, kept playing because he had his wireless system on his guitar, walked up the stage, walked into the crowd and fucking beat the shit out of that guy. Then he just fucking walked back up on stage and kept fucking playing. Like, you don't see shit like that anymore, you know? The defining moment for convincing me on Watain as artists as a whole was at Maryland Death Fest. I know it was right before the lead up to uh, Lawless Darkness release. I don't remember what year that was, 2010, something like that. Yeah, 2010. And during during their set, I was in the front row and one of the members of DRI came on stage, stage. was was trying to clown them, like do a little dance thing. And the whole whole squad just beat his ass. And I just, as soon as that moment, I went, okay. There it is. That's fucking crazy because I was there too. I was fucking 
dead center of the stage, like right in front of Eric. I remember I didn't even fucking see that shit happen because I was so into the show. They had just started playing Sworn of the Dark. And uh, I remember hearing like they were playing like the first verse kind of cut off. But I remember earlier in the set, they had some difficulties too. So I thought, oh, the guitar dropped out. And it happened in such a split second that they fucking beat his ass and they went back to playing. I said, I was just fucking losing my mind in the front. So I didn't even see it happen until the next day. I was at the hotel room and I was fucking looking for footage and I saw Watane beats up the guy from DRI and I was like, what the fuck? And that's when I realized, oh, that's when the sound dropped out. I was fucking pissed because I missed it. And I think my fucking camera had gotten knocked out of my hand at that point because I recorded most of that set, but I don't have it on, on film. It's not that I remember. But I remember at one point, you know, the fucking crowd was going crazy as fuck, so someone knocked the camera out of my hand and I tasked the security guard to grab it for me. It was almost like uh, metaphorical in a way where it's like this band that is such a relic of the past in every way. I mean, could anyone really say that they're relevant in any sense? I mean, they've never been to me in general, but of course now, I mean, 30, 40 years on. Yeah. And, you know, trying to clown, which is like we talked about before, someone who... I imagine the reason they did this was because that whole thing is you take yourself too seriously. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's exactly what that was. That's exactly what it was. the price for that. And it's like such like a, a changing of the guard in that moment. Like it really was a touching thing in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, when we actually met Watane uh, in 2015 after it was mayhem, we were hanging out with them at the bar and uh, we were talking to Eric and I asked him about that shit. Cause I told him like, yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even see it happen. I was right there in the fucking front. And then I told him, uh, I said something about, it. he started laughing. He said, he's like, yeah, uh, the fucking dude from DRI came up to us in, in Europe one time. We were playing another show. And he said that the fucking guy came up to him and he was like, Oh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for, for ruining your show. And Eric was like, why are you apologizing to us? We're the ones that kick your fucking ass. <laughs> It also raises an interesting thing about this whole pushback you get in popular culture. It's like we talked about scene tourists, you know, cultural tourists and things like the idea of people asking for things they don't actually want, like the art versus reality. Of course, I'm not being literal attitude. And that's, I feel like that's something we see very much so now culturally where it's like, you know, how many bands use the word pestilence in a song title and then is instantly you know, you have to listen to this guideline of this when it comes to COVID or we have to do this. Like it, it really is like people falling apart the instant, like what you ask for is actually brought to you. Yeah. Fuck everyone's like, Oh, I was just, I was, uh, you're taking it out of context. I was only seeing that in the, in the fucking lyrics or blah, blah. But it's like, if you don't believe what you're even writing about, why are you even doing any of it? It's bullshit. You're a fucking charlatan. You're a fake. And yeah, a lot of fucking bands do that shit. Like, I think it all started because of, I want to say obituary when they started playing life metal versus death metal. They did that fucking, what's that one album with that song, Don't Care? It's all about like polluting the world and shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, fucking death metal. Like That's exactly, you can see where the, the European mindset came from where they grew up listening to bands like obituary and fucking DSI and Morbid Angel because they were evil as fuck. And then everyone starts thinking about fucking social issues and all this other dumb shit. Like, what the fuck does that have to do with any fucking like satanic grand aspects and you're fucking thinking about society's problems and all this shit. Now you have all this fucking R8BM and all this fucking anti-fascist black metal and all this other bullshit. It's like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything, man? You just take your fucking 
go trumpet your causes somewhere else. You know, have a parade somewhere and go fuck off. You know, don't fucking don't try to bring black metal into it because it has nothing to fucking do with black metal. And then the people that don't even have their own spine to stick up for what they're saying are even fucking worse because they should have fucking been standing up for what they say to begin with, man. It's very true. Okay, I wanted to shift now. I don't want to talk about being American, being in America. You know, it just doesn't feel like we live in a real country. It feels like we live in a shopping mall, especially culturally. I'm, I'm not really sure what there is to gain from it in a positive sense. But I'm also wondering that kind of perverse structure that you live under here, that kind of sterile reality, how has that influenced Nexel? Like, does it's such a violent band, I have to wonder, like, is part of that a reaction to living under that culture? For me, a lot of it is because I just, it's, it's funny the paradox that we're stuck in because I reject the modern world as much as I can. And here I am talking on a fucking smartphone on a Zoom meeting. So it's not like I'm going to say I fucking rail against the modern world completely because I'm not fucking, you know, thorough fucking living in Walden Pond. I am forced to use this shit because that's how we got to go about life, you know, but I reject, you know, modern ideals. And that shit is what like inflames me and infuriates me to make me want to do this kind of stuff. It, it is railing against, you know, modern just emptiness. There's, there's no spirituality anymore. But part of it too is because where we live, uh, El Paso, you'll be a, you'll see it being touted by a bunch of fucking people like Democrats and shit that all oh, it's such a it's such a safe city and blah 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 and this this and that and I mean for the most part it is but it's getting a lot worse again like the way it used to I wouldn't say about fuck, 10, 15 years ago this place was still pretty fucking you're in the wrong part of town you're gonna get fucked up for sure and uh, I've heard from one of my chemistry teachers when I was in high school that there's trace amounts of lithium in the drinking water. So he said that that's why a lot of people in El Paso are kind of like laid back. And he nailed it perfectly because he said it's like, it's a big city with a small time feel just because everybody's just fucking laid back. Nobody really cares about anything here. Everybody just fucking wants to jump on the next trend because El Paso is always months behind on, on something, you know? So everyone wants to jump on the fucking trend, be a fan, jump on the bandwagon and shit. Everybody wants to fucking post on their Instagram and do a bunch of stupid shit. And it's just, there's a huge disconnect between those fucking people and then certain places where we are. Like, if I were to go on the roof right now of the temple, you could see into Mexico. A lot of places around here are really fucking poor. Uh, you know, people live in the real world, you know, fucking day to day. They struggle and shit. They don't have time for stupid shit like that. So it's, I guess it's like part of both worlds. We fucking live in the real world. We struggle. We know what it is. We know what it is to fucking work for everything that you have. Nothing is given to us. We earn everything that we fucking do. We've always earned everything that we do. And we don't want to be part of that stupid fucking, that plastic culture that they have. We don't want to be part of the herd. And, you know, I don't want to fucking go to a bar in here, fucking all this bachata and bad bunny and all this stupid shit and go on Facebook Live and do all this other dumb shit. I just want to fucking be left the fuck alone and if i want to go to a bar and hear music i want to hear some fucking metal or something that i want to hear you know like some 70s rock or something you know not the same stupid shit that everybody listens to day in day out and it's just like uh it's just discussed on a, on a different level than we than i used to feel personally before it was straight up misanthropy i just didn't like people at all now it's not necessarily i guess part of it's from talking to carl too on on the Arcadian tour but 
it's not a show that I just hate people. It's, I hate their fucking, their mindsets that they don't want to strive to be anything better. And even when they try to strive to be better, they're still stuck in their own fucking ego ways. Like, see people at the gym and like, you want to use a piece of equipment, but a fucking dude just sitting there and he's just on his fucking phone, just scrolling nonstop. Like, dude, get out of the fucking way, man. Somebody actually wants to use that shit and better themselves. You're just here fucking taking up space and then when you do start your fucking workout, you got to fucking post on on your fucking stories and all this shit that you're fucking getting them gains and all that shit. It's like, get the fuck out of here, man. It's just ridiculous. It's a total fucking shit show. It's the decline of Western civilization, part three, four, five, however many sequels are going to make out of that shit. It's also, you know, the difficulty is the more you try to hide from it, you know, they won't let you. And it's it seems a bit misguided you know i think years ago everybody thought you were julius evola you know we're not going to revolt against the modern world and ride the tiger as the ruins you know this and that like it's just that's just not reality so yeah. i wonder like the thing that i'm confused about is especially artistically with bands like where's the panic you know it seems like there has to be some type of response to this and it seems like it would get stronger with this but it doesn't really seem to be the case i guess it's because most people don't fucking see what they're doing with the, the same degree of respect that it, it should have. You know, like I've seen numerous fucking bands here that are extremely talented musicians, but they're all pretty much just weekend warriors because they're content to play at the same bar every fucking week, play the same stupid songs over and over for the same people and just be cool with it and, you know, fucking have a few beers and laughs and shit. Whereas people like us, we're not content with that shit at all. We want to fucking go further and further and just keep pushing our, our art as far as it'll take us and we want to fucking go everywhere and you know, we want to do we're going to push it as far as we can go as well so we treat it with that same respect that it's it's uh it deserves something more than just uh as a hobby you know as a, as a means to hang out with people on the weekend and do stupid shit like that and for everybody else they don't have that fucking fire and then you know they're just content to oh let's hang out and do this this and that let's do the same shit we've done week in week out for who knows how many years and they're just happy with that we don't fucking work that way like especially now since i said i have so many projects coming up this is something i've been working on for years and years but you know one way or another it just gets stalled or like i finally got a drum set so i'm learning how to play the drums and it was the beginning of the year that i realized like fuck man i'm not getting not getting any younger and i'm already fucking 35 years old it's just gonna start getting harder and harder but i need to start doing this shit now so I have that fire under my ass because not only do we have to keep doing what we've already established with Nixel and, you know, Helvatron and all these other bands that we're doing. Now I have more things that I want to put out before I fucking leave. And I have to fucking, I have to move my ass on it. Like you got to fucking, it's only 24 hours in a day and can't afford to waste a single one on stupid shit, you know? And, you know, a lot of people do. And that's not to say that we're not immune to it either, but we catch ourselves in it and that's, you know, that's when you hold yourself accountable. It goes back to being honest with yourself. Like, Oh shit. You know what? I need to stop and put my fucking phone away or something. And you get on the drums and you pick up a guitar and you start writing and you start drawing and you do something to fucking further what has to be done. And you know, everybody else is just content to, to do nothing and shit. I forgot who said it, but, uh, how you said, you've always said, we're not going to revolt against the water, modern world and ride the tiger. Like, they said, uh, the world doesn't end with a bang, but with a whimper. That's where everyone goes. They're, 
they say that they're gonna go out fighting, but they just pass away like fucking feeble children and shit, or like a fucking injured animal. You just crawl off to a corner somewhere and die. Don't do anything about it. And some years ago, I had this moment where I was sitting inside of a hospital waiting room and I was looking at the kind of the bullshit, like uh, mass produced art that's on the wall, very abstract stuff. And it kind of struck with the realization, like maybe this is the actual representation of the shit that we're living. That's very true. I never even thought about that because I see things like that too. And I'm not a, an art critic or an art lover or anything like that. I'm more of a my favorite form of art are like old medieval woodcuts because that's always resonated with me the most. But I see this abstract stuff too and I don't understand it. And I mean, I'm pretty sure the artists would be like, oh, well, this represents blah, 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 whatever the fuck. But I don't fucking see. All I see is somebody threw a bunch of paint on a canvas and just fucking left it there. And you're actually right because maybe people are so devoid of ideas or any actual, like, they haven't trained themselves or done anything to better themselves. This is all they can do is they just fucking... Throw shit at the wall and let's see what sticks. And that's how it is. Tell me about being selected for the Wittane tour. I know that was something that was, you know, one of the cornerstone moments for Nexul, was it not? Yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, I remember at the time, uh, I was working construction with my little brother, and I had gotten, I was in a different company than he was at the time, so we had lunch at different times of the day. And earlier that morning, uh, one of my old bandmates that lives in Colorado had told me about the tour. And he's like, hey, let's, let's see about doing a road trip. Maybe you can come check it out in Denver and uh, we can all hang out. So when he told me about it, I saw they were playing in Phoenix. And I texted my little brother and said, hey, well, let's, let's plan a road trip to go to Phoenix and go see Wattain. I went to lunch and I was just by myself and I was hanging out under a fucking, under a trailer. And I decided to check my email, which is a good thing I did. And I saw a fucking email that said, Temple of Watain, and at first I thought it was like a newsletter, and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? I didn't subscribe to anything. And I realized that it was Eric's contact that I'd saved a couple years back. And he sent me an email saying, uh, uh, just checking to see the status of Nixul. It's like, we're getting ready to do a tour with uh, Destroyer 666, and we're going to have some special guests along the road. Is uh, I wanted to see if Nixul is available to open for us from this date to this date. We're going to go from Phoenix down to Jacksonville. It's like, these are the details, blah, blah. All you got to do is, you know, get your own transportation, bring your backline, and this, this, and that. He gave me the, the rundown. And then he said, uh, it would be fucking great to have the Terror of Nixul on the road for a few days. Just let me know by a certain date or whatever. And I saw that shit, and I fucking, I wasn't wearing my hard hat. I almost jumped up and cracked my head on the fucking, on the trainer, because I was just, like, in shock. Like, oh, what the fuck? So immediately, I got on the, the fucking group chat with the rest of the guys. And I told him, dude, Eric from Watain just fucking emailed me and he wants fucking Nexul to open up for them and Destroyer in about three months, three, four months. Are you guys in or what? And I told him, like, I'm fucking completely down. You know me. And I was expecting it was going to take, you know, the rest of the day for everyone to respond because everyone had work. And within, like, two minutes, everybody had re replied, oh, fuck, yeah, dude, we're in, we're in. So we fucking started talking to Eric. We told him, yeah, we're in. Uh, let's start planning everything out. From there, we fucking... Uh, Got everything going, went to the first date in Phoenix, fucking met up with them, talked to, talked everything over, how we're going to go about things. Almost got us kicked off tour for fucking using blood, which I didn't know that we weren't going to be able to use. So the fucking tour manager was fucking furious at me. He was going to kick me off the tour that same fucking night. 
But then after the show was over, Eric came up to us and he was like, if you have any trouble, you talk to me personally and I'll take care of it and shit. Because by that point in time, Eric had already consolidated enough power that he was pretty much the one running the tour. Whatever he said went. And he was very fucking pleased with what we were doing. And uh, I don't know if I should fucking say this too. Maybe we can edit this later. But apparently the one that was instrumental in getting us on that tour was fucking Kramer himself. Because apparently Kramer and Eric are very, very fucking close. And like Eric looks up to Kramer probably more than anybody else. Later on, after we finished our leg of the, the, the Pandemoniac tour, we were with K-Man Cole and we were in Chicago. Fucking Kramer showed up unannounced because he, he you know, he's got to fucking watch his back. So we just, we're there in the basement and fucking Kramer walked in. I was like, oh, what the fuck? So it was you know, a pleasure to see him. And I told him, hey, fucking Eric, uh, thank you in the fucking liner notes. He goes, yeah, I talk to him all the fucking time, dude. He's like, fucking, we're very close. And I was, I was pretty taken aback by that. Like, holy shit. So apparently Kramer had always been fucking espousing, you know, the OSI and like Niog and bands like that. And I know for sure that I gave Emil a copy of the, the Death Scroll tape when we met them in 2015. And then uh, when they were getting ready to record uh, China Wolf Eclipse, Eric had emailed me because I sent him some videos of them with Salim and shit. So he's like, oh, thank you for sending the videos. It's good to see them. He's like, we're getting ready to... Uh, you know, prepare for the cold winter in the north, and we're gonna, you know, seclude ourselves for a few months and record this album. And I think it was Set, who's also pretty close with uh, with XS and some of the other guys. He was the one that told them that what they did was they, they had a cabin or whatever, so they just pretty much locked themselves away and recorded the new album. And they just grabbed a bunch of albums and they took them with them, and that's all they listened to for the whole time that they were there. They just like bunkered down for a couple of months. And a lot of the shit that they took was OSI stuff. So apparently Kramer, you know, had a big hand in it. They heard our stuff and they liked it. Obviously, Eric's not just going to ask some fucking unknown band out of nowhere. So that was fucking, that too was just fucking insane to, to even think about. Are there any more stories from that tour worth telling? Uh, yeah, there's been all kinds of crazy shit, even from the very beginning. Uh, where, where could we even start? I know there's one that's uh, it's been talked about a lot more, like like with the bands that we've toured with, and uh, some of the people that we know. Because I guess the metal scene in the U.S. is a lot more connected than you would know. Because you know, there's always a little festival going on here or there, or like a little weekend, I guess getaway for lack of a better term. So we've played a lot of these shows, like Cathedral of Black Goat, and so on and so forth. Uh, when we finished the Pandemonium Wolf March, we did the Nashville Desecration Tour. So it's a lot, you know, you see a lot of the same faces and, you know, a lot of the same bands playing. And right after we finished uh, the Waltane portion, and we were touring with K-Man Cult on Paradigm of Chaos Tour, we were in, uh, in Gainesville in Florida, and it was going to be our last night in Florida. And I remember it's pretty much prophetic in a sense because... When we were playing, I remember uh, yelling at the crowd that uh, this is our final night in your fucking putrid state, and tonight it's going to fucking burn. After the set was over and done with, uh, we went to some... Uh, one of the guys who came and called their friend uh, had a house where she let us go. We could just hang out for a while. And uh, we stayed there till about 
three in the morning or so. And then we decided we we're going to go get our hotel room that was already reserved. But they didn't tell us that we had to check in by a certain time. So when we got to the hotel, they told us that the reservation was canceled. We no longer had a room. And if we wanted to get the room, the price had just shot up like by double. So we called this guy and he goes, oh, yeah, you know, uh, if you want, you can come back to this place. And uh, she's got plenty of room. You guys can stay here and we'll, we'll take off again in the morning. So we went to go eat. We got back to her house around six in the morning. And, uh, you know, we were all exhausted by that point. So myself and XS stayed in the van and uh, AX and Lux went inside. We'd only been asleep for about 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, I remember the, the van door just like sliding open real fast. And Lux is there. And he's telling us like, hey, man, we got to help this lady out. Her fucking house is on fire. And, you know, I'd only been asleep for about 10 minutes. So I don't know what the hell was going on. I thought I was still asleep. But I was like half awake and what was going on. But, you know, after about a second, like the weight of those, those words hit me. I was like, oh, what the fuck? Her house is burning down? So I got out and I looked. And, you know, early in the morning when you can see... Uh, like mist and kind of like dew rising on the grass you could see that but it looked really thick and then i realized that it wasn't mist it was smoke and i looked towards the house and i saw him just like running full speed you could see smoke just pouring out of the house but i told the other guy like oh shit dude this fucking lady's house is burning down dude we gotta get everybody the fuck out of there so we go running in and you know again the caveman cult guys out of there and trying to fucking grab whatever we can grab the rest of our shit making sure everybody's uh everybody's out of the house we go running out like what the fuck this lady's running around looking for her cat and they're trying to tell her like no man your fucking cat was the first one out of here like that that cat's gone like don't worry about it and uh she went running around to the back like the chairs to the back to make sure you can try to go in you could hear the glass cracking and you could you could hear the roof finally starting to give way so we grabbed her went running the fuck out of there got to the front of the house and her fucking like the roof caved in and everything started coming down. I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck? So, you know, we took off. We had, we had to go stay somewhere else. Uh, one of the guys should came back cold, stay with her to make sure she was all right and wait for the uh, fire marshals and everything. And uh, we had to wait to get all that shit taken care of. So we had a show later that night in Alabama that we had to, that we had to pass up because we just couldn't leave on time. Like we didn't leave till about, four or five in the afternoon and uh i started thinking back like holy shit man like i just fucking said that this day was gonna burn this lady's house fucking caught on fire and then right when we were leaving we looked at the at the sunset and it was just a very brilliant sunset but it was like dark red and almost looked like the sky was on fire like holy shit so one of the other guys had texted the the guys from Destroyer were like, dude, we were in a fucking house fire. Like, what the fuck? It was crazy. As we kept, you know, moving up towards New York, we got into Cleveland. And as soon as we got into the city limits of Cleveland, the first thing we saw was a fucking house on fire on the side of the road. We're like, God damn, man, we didn't even play yet. Fucking houses are burning down. So at this point, you know, the K-Man Cole guys and the Washington guys had already heard that we were in a fucking house fire. When we got to New York to go play at St. Vitus, you know, we invited all of them to come check it out. So everyone starts getting there, and uh, I see Hampe, and the first thing Hampe says is like, man, I have to fucking hear about this fire. So everybody had already heard about it, like, what the hell was going on? And, and the first time we saw Eric, first thing he tells me to is, I have to hear about this fire. And we told him what happened. He's like, it's a very good omen. It means you guys are doing things correctly. 
and it just seems like everywhere we go now, people are like, damn, asshole, what happened with that fucking house fire? So it's kind of like, a, I guess, like a fucking urban legend going around with around with us. Fucking, you know, we went to, went to Florida and fucking, you know, man, everything's burning down and shit. Did you ever find out what actually caused the fire in her house? Yeah, uh, the fire marshals had said something that, like, it was an electrical fire. That, like, something in her dryer caught fire. But the strange thing is she said she hadn't used it in about... I would say at least a week and a half, maybe longer. And we all thought, oh, maybe she didn't clean the lint trap or something. She said she had cleaned everything out. So there was like no lint in the dryer, no nothing. So I don't know. It was just a fucking, just a crazy electrical fire. But it makes you wonder when fucking, when you're saying shit, like your state's going to fucking burn. And then this shit happens. It's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. What are the coincidences? Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, that that whole tour was just fucking pure madness, man. I remember we missed out missed that date because of the, the house fire, and then we were driving up to fucking West Virginia, and the fucking van broke down. It was like smoke pouring in through the fucking through the vents because like the van put the radiator, so it's like smoke pouring into the van. So we had to pile out. Fucking had to go take the van to get fixed. So of course we missed another fucking date there, and then uh, we we're in this small like one horse town and I don't know where the hell we were in West Virginia. And uh thankfully the the auto place was still open so we were able to get it fixed. They just said get it the next morning. And uh we're all like, fuck man, this is you know money's gonna come out of our pockets and then one of the K Man Cold guys tells us, Yeah, like I know I know it fucking sucks too, but I think it's pretty funny. Like look at the total bill. We looked at the bill and it was fucking six hundred and sixty six dollars to fix the van. All of us were just like, yeah, fuck, of course it, of course it would be. So fucking got that fixed, took off again, and we're on the road for maybe about an, an hour. And the same shit started happening again. Fucking smoke starts pouring into the fucking, to the, the vents. So we're like, god damn it, dude, we're never going to fucking, never going to fucking make it to Tennessee. And uh, we call AAA, and they're like, no, it's just because fucking hills in West Virginia are murder, especially on vans like that. So like, just keep your speed down and, you know, once you pass through the, the worst of it, then you should be fine. Slow down, got that out of the way, and fucking finally made it to Tennessee. Did our last fucking shows, came back home. Like, God damn, dude, what a fucking wild, wild turn of events all that shit was. From uh, being in Tampa, thinking that we're going to fucking die because Watane's going to burn the fucking venue down. And then being in a place that actually did fucking burn down and we're in there. And then almost fucking choking to death in the fucking, in the van all the smoke. Coming at the $666. Like, God damn, dude, all well, fucking Paradigm of Chaos is a perfect title for that tour. That's exactly what it was. I guess it does show that doing what you do does have consequences, right? Yeah, fucking A, right. Especially when you believe wholeheartedly in it. Then, like, fuck, what else has happened? You're in, uh, you know, all the fucking whole fiasco with their kid in Oracle in Chicago. That was fucking, that was a lot of fun. We, uh, we got told the day before that the venue was gonna, gonna cancel the whole show. Like, unless Halitron got kicked off the bill because apparently we were a bunch of Nazis and shit. So, we told the Arcadian guys, like, nah, well, we won't play the show. Like, you guys came from Sweden. We're not gonna fucking, you know, you guys need as many shows as you can get. 
And uh, the drummer told us, nah, fuck that. Like, we already had this talk before we even left Sweden. And we said that uh, we were prepared for this exact moment. So he said, uh, you know, if this happens, we're not going to play either. It's, it's either both of us or none of us are playing. We said, all right, well, we'll see what we can figure out. Our tour manager spent like the next two, three hours running around, calling venues, trying to find a place to play. And then uh, we ended up finding a venue that said, yeah, you guys can play there. And uh, there's no no restrictions whatsoever. They, didn't, they could fucking care less about what we did. So we said, all right, we're fucking set. Uh, just nobody mentioned it until a day out, so nothing goes wrong. And then some fucking idiot on Facebook has to start opening his big fucking mouth. And like, oh, yeah, Antifa, you're never going to fucking stop us and blah, blah, blah. And this guy had no reason to say anything, seeing as he was no longer part of this fucking show because he'd already fucked up already on that tour. So I guess he had a fucking rat on his profile. They found out. They called the fucking venue, and it turned out to be uh, some band called Against Me, I guess. Some fucking guy named Laura Jane Grace. I don't fucking know. They called the venue and said, oh, yeah, you guys are hosting a bunch of Nazis and blah, 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 blah. Fucking landed in Chicago about one in the afternoon. Told us, no, the fucking show is completely canceled. You guys can't fucking play here and blah, blah, blah. And we were doing anything we could to try to find another fucking venue. Like even Paul Wagner from Operation Werewolf had put out a like an SOS to anybody that could help out. Like, we're going to play in a small warehouse or whatever we could do. And fucking that whole show just fell apart. So I said, ah, fuck it. Like, what can we do? We're fucked now. So we ended up finding a, a little bar that was about a mile from our hotel. I said, fuck, let's just make the best of a, of a bad experience. So we went there, and uh, the other bands were supposed to play with us. You know, they drove like six, eight hours for nothing. So we all just met up, just fucking spent a night drinking and shit. And a lot of our friends were going to go see us. It came, showed up, just got fucking trashed, man. Fucking uh, Kramer ended up showing up out of nowhere. We're like, oh, shit. So that definitely helped salvage night. You know, and we don't know. Uh, we don't always see Kramer, but you know, whenever we run into him, it's always a fucking, it's always a good time to talk and catch up. So fucking hung out with Kramer for a while, went back to the hotel, just fucking, you know, by that point we we're just so fucking pissed off and just fucking all liquored up. We we're just causing all kinds of madness and shit. And uh, I guess somebody called the cops. So they're knocking on our fucking door and we were getting ready to leave in an hour anyhow, because we had to fly straight to New York. And uh, the cops are banning the door. We're like, ah, fuck, here we go again, man. It's not the first time calling cops out in Chicago. So they're like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And all pissed off. What's going on in there? And fucking axe. Yeah, I don't know how he did it, man. But fucking wrapped the top of his head. He kind of cracks the door open a little bit. And he's talking to the police officer. And like, yeah, well, we've got a bunch of noise complaints. Like, What's going on? Well, there's so many fucking people in there. He goes, oh, shit, man. I'm sorry. Uh, we're banned and we're touring. Uh, we're Slipknot. And the guy was like, what? You guys are Slipknot? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm fucking Chris from Slipknot, and that's so-and-so, and this is blah, blah, blah. Like, that's why there's so many fucking people in the room. Like, we're sorry, man, like, uh, we had a show, but it got canceled tonight, so uh, we're actually getting ready to take off right now to fucking, to New York, and just, you know, keep the tour going. And the cop was like, oh, shit. He was kind of impressed, and he looked in, he was trying to see who was in there, and he was like, oh, shit. Oh, all right, well, I mean, yeah, you know, next time, you know, guys just keep it down, and, uh, you know, you guys just be safe. Yeah, 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 yeah. thanks, you know, we're sorry about the, sorry about the trouble. Fucking close the door, cops fucking leave. We wait for about a minute and we just start fucking howling. Like, dude, how the fuck did you come up with that one? I don't know, man. That fucking saved us right there. Probably would have ended up in jail in Chicago. Get to New York the next night and fucking, uh, 
who was playing um, Morpheus Descent and Teach Calm were playing at the Brooklyn Bazaar. So our, our show was until about midnight in Queens. So the promoter had invited us. And said, yeah, let's go check it out. We get there, and apparently the Nile guys found the guy that had been talking shit about them online and had caused a lot of trouble for them with that fucking, with that, uh, that Helgo tour and also with that, uh, that fucking best in Jersey at Dingbats. So they finally found out who was behind it. So we fucking, we, we saw him, we confronted him, we were gonna fucking, we were just gonna beat the shit out of him and fucking take off. But Brooklyn Bazaar is fucking upstairs and there's only one way in and one way out. So it's not just gonna be as easy as just going, fucking being the hell of this guy and then taking off and shit. Confronted him, fucking security saw what was going on, we're getting ready to beat the living shit out of this guy. And they said, no, 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 you guys, you know, get the fuck out of here. And we said, hey, this fuck, fuck this guy too, man. This, is, this guy's a fucking piece of shit. You should kick him out too. Like, yeah, we're going to kick him out, but you guys all got to get the fuck out of here. So fucking we go down the stairs. They kicked us out first, obviously. And then uh, we were debating what our next course of action was going to be. And you know, these guys like, fuck that, dude. We're not going to fucking, we're not going to leave without our fucking pound of flesh, you know? So we even told the guy, hey, just fucking, you know, wait for us outside. We'll fucking we'll fucking throw it outside. We have to be inside the venue. You know, we'll, we'll do a man to man too. We're not gonna be like all fire with being the shit out of you. We even told him, you know, come to our fucking show, man. We'll fucking you can square up with us over there at our fucking place. And then when we we're getting ready to leave, we looked up and they were barely kicking this guy out. And then he saw like you know, eight or nine of us downstairs. No, no, we're not gonna let this guy fucking leave so you can all jump him. We're like fuck that. We're not gonna jump him. We're gonna we're gonna fucking fight like men. But you know gonna go on the street if you fucking let him go like a real fucking man like, no no we're gonna let him get drunk fuck the fuck out of here just fucking left you told him yeah if you're a real fucking man show up to this fucking address we'll be there and uh see if you're a fucking man or not if you're a fucking pussy you know so they heard it was in queens and it was all the fucking satanic hispanics of course nobody fucking showed up everybody's fucking like the, the satanic hispanics don't give a fuck about anything especially when it comes to like fucking uh political views or like fucking uh any side of the political spectrum, they're just there to fuck shit up. But, you know, if you go fuck up their show, they're just gonna fucking beat your ass instead. So they knew that. Just fucking took off. So it was like almost fucking two nights in a row that we could have ended up in jail. God damn, man. Yeah, and I was thinking about before the guy from Against Me coming after you. That's such a weird cross-cultural thing. I mean, that's a band that's, I believe, on the radio and things like that, too. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment in my eyes to somebody coming after you that has that level of success and somehow still worried about what you're doing. Yeah, I guess so. Because fucking, I mean, I guess it's like some fucking transgender guy that plays in a pop punk band. I don't, I don't fucking know. I didn't really know who against me was until all that shit happened. And a lot of our friends are the ones telling us, Oh dude, we, it was, it was fucking Lord Jane Grace. Like we, we heard about it somewhere. Like they were posting about it and shit. So I mean, yeah, I guess we do carry that kind of fucking, like it's like cross-cultural, uh, fucking fear you know that, that they are worried about what we're gonna fucking do and the thing that really pissed us all off about this shit was uh when it all went down we were the ones that fucking lost everything you know chicago was supposed to be a huge payday for us and uh we'd already taken a big financial hit because the original promoter fucked up and he never bought our fucking plane tickets from seattle to chicago so the tour manager had to dig in his own fucking money and get fucking tickets and we had to leave from fucking Portland this time. So we had to fucking, there was another stop that we had to make to just to go from Portland to Chicago to fucking play. And, uh, when it came out on the news, 
all the venues that, that fucking canceled us. Like the first one was a Cobra Lounge that we were originally supposed to play there that said that we couldn't because we're Nazis. They started saying, oh, you know, we took a big hit. You know, we lost a few thousand dollars because of that. But, you know, we're going to stand by our, by our guns and blah, blah. You know, we don't, we don't allow that kind of shit and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, bullshit, they didn't lose anything, man. They fucking had, uh, they had a bunch of people show up to that stupid fucking bar because they're a bunch of uh, freedom fighters, I guess. So they fucking made their money for sure. They actually probably had a bigger fucking crowd than if we would have played anyhow just because all the Antifa nerds started fucking going and hitting them up and trying to show support and shit. So all the venues are like, oh, yeah, we lost money. You know, we stick to our principles and shit. It's like, what fucking principles? You're trying to fucking fight racism and shit. So you just took the fucking money out of a bunch of fucking Mexicans and shit. And now the Mexicans got to go home fucking broke because you fucking, because you fucking class acts. So it's just like very hypocritical, man. A bunch of fucking morons is all they are. Well, I guess it's laughable to say that taking a stand against racism is somehow controversial or, you know, will cost you. Yeah. Fucking fuck those fucking people. Because what I said now, like when we do, we do have a lot of, uh, contacts that I support in Chicago, but who knows now if we'll fucking if we'll if we'll go back because this last time was just a fucking complete shit show. And if we do go back, they're gonna play those fucking shitty ass fucking bars that we can fucking we've done it before. We we played pack house we we fucking packed up those fucking venues and fucking you know, everybody makes a fucking killing at the bar, you know, because they're fucking people spending money, they're fucking tipping out the bartenders, blah, 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 blah. Nobody gave a shit, uh, you know, the year before that, that we were there, nobody cared that we were Nazis or whatever the fuck you want to say. So, in the end, Cobra Lounge and all these fucking places, they're just gonna fucking, who knows, they probably fell victim to fucking COVID for all I know. And shit, there you go with your stupid fucking, with your standing up for everybody else, it's gonna stand up for you when, when you fucking need it fuck those people i guess i wonder too would you rather have it happen outright like that to you or i'm i'm reminded of that niog video where they're playing i think it's new york city and they just cut the pa on them entirely as like a fuck you thing like in the middle of the show what i remember hearing about that one was that uh they told them that niog couldn't play whatsoever but they let the rest of the fucking show happen and uh one of the guys that was there was fucking i guess he was like a a promoter at the time. Well, I don't know if he was helping with that show, but he's, you know, he's, he's one of our good allies too and shit. Where everybody pretty much fucking knew that since Niall was still there in the fucking building, that they were going to fucking play no matter what. So the sound guy, I guess he was like, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the one to catch fucking catch wind for this shit. I'm not going to, I'm not going to catch flack for this shit. So before Niall was going to start setting up all their shit, he disconnected everything. So they set up and fucking, Anybody that was left over, you know, from the Myox side, they were the ones figuring out how to plug everything back in. They said, you know, we're here. You're not going to fucking stop us one way or another. And they'd already said beforehand that it was just going to be one fucking song. And that's it. You can go fuck yourself. They did that one fucking song. Play with everyone. I saw the video uh, the next day or so. I was fucking completely taken aback. Just like how vicious it was. And then to see fucking acts and like just picks up the mic and smash it on the fucking stage. Him actually rip his fucking mask off right away. I was like, oh shit, man. All you guys took the fucking mask off, you know, fucking excess fucking rails into the fucking crowd and shit. That was a fucking, I like that because it was just them taking a stand, you know, like, fuck it. Uh, we're here anyways. You're not going to fucking stop us. You're going to fucking silence us. So, I mean, 
I think I'd prefer for it to happen like that too. If we only get like one fucking one song, just like one one chance to fucking go do it. Fuck it. You know? We did whatever we could that day, but we'd already fucking went through. We already had to fucking try to play at one venue and deal with a bunch of restrictions. So we got another place that we have played in the past and we could have had a fucking clean slate until this fucking idiot fucked everything up. And then we tried what we could too. We were we were willing to play in a fucking warehouse. We didn't give a fuck. You know, we're there. We we're there to play. But everything fell through. It almost happened to us in uh, 2012 too. When we we're gonna play at Club Laura, the fucking the venue lost their uh, business license the day before Cathedral of Black Goat Fest was supposed to happen. So Ramadan was doing the same thing, fucking running around. He told us, "Hey, well, I found a fucking venue that's gonna let us play, but it's a fucking uh, it's a skinhead bar." And all of us were like, so who cares? Oh, I just, just want to let you guys know. And he was like, do you think we fucking give a fuck? Skinhead bar. Like, do we feel a bit more at home playing in a fucking place like that? Doesn't, doesn't fucking scare us at all, you know? Like, we're there because we want to cause fucking violence and fucking make waves and shit. What better place to do it than a fucking skinhead bar? They're guaranteed to start fucking shit up. He found another venue, so we didn't play there. So that was like a missed opportunity, I think. That would have just fucking made it. Just add it on to the legacy of everything that we've done. I only have one more question. How do you imagine your own death? I've thought about that a lot over the years, and uh, the only way that I can see it is you just have to you have to go out on top, you know, like John and, and Salim. Uh, you know, why why fade away to nothingness? I've thought about this for a long time. And this was especially when I would listen to a lot of Burzum and I would study Norse mythology. I think the best thing to do is to go out on your own terms, but you also have to make sure that you've paid off all your debts on the planet. I'm not just saying like financial stuff, like anything that you owe, like you want to be done with this plane completely. Like you don't have anything tying you down anymore. And that way also... Somebody's going to have to find your body and take care of it. You're obviously going to leave people behind. They're going to be grieving you, even if you tell them not to. But somebody's going to have to find you and fucking take care of all this shit. So the least you can do is take care of as many, type as many loose ends as possible. And I think the best way to go about it would be to, to hang myself. Because like Odin hung on the world tree for nine days to gain the knowledge of the runes. It would be the same thing. I would hang myself to gain the knowledge of the other side and to try to finish that ascent into godhood, into universe B, become my own creator, my own destroyer, my own Satan, my own Lucifer. And I think that's the only way I can see things going, but everything's so unpredictable. Who knows? I just think the ideal way is to go out on top, maybe the way I said, but be prepared at any moment because it could happen at any fucking time. The world is getting crazier and crazier. The city is becoming a stranger place again. You can just go out anytime, anywhere, and somebody will fucking pull a gun on you and just fucking shoot you because you fucking said they don't like their shirt or whatever fucking stupid-ass kids pull guns for nowadays. So I think the best thing to do is be prepared for when it comes, but to go out on top this is the only way you should go out rather than wither and fall. That way people will remember you at your top. They don't remember you at your lowest.